to talk with Art Bell in the Kingdom of Nye from east of the Rockies, dial 1-800-825-5033, 1-800-825-5033. West of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico, 1-800-618-8255, 1-800-618-8255. Now again, here's Art Bell. Once again, here I am. Welcome, everybody. If you're just uh, joining us at this hour, boy... Did you miss some interview with uh, Dr. Malin, the man in charge of the Mars photography that we all hope is going to go on? It was a um, a very very well done interview. It lasted about 20 25 minutes somewhere in there. Linda Moulton Howe did it uh, with Michael Malin. And uh, I came away with a lot of impressions um some of them rather cynical, but maybe that's just me. We've come the whole way this week now uh, with regard to this uh, controversy, beginning with Richard Hoagland, and then, of course, the um, uh, uh, two scientists we had on last night, uh, Dr. McDaniel, and then uh, Michael Malin tonight. So we've heard from just about everybody and we will do kind of an assessment of the whole thing as we uh, move forward, I'm sure, this morning. In our conversation <laughs> with um, uh, Greg Braden, and this is a program I have been looking forward to doing for a while. I think you'll enjoy it. First, I, I again would like to note the passing, the sad passing, of actor J.T. Walsh. Uh, J.T. was most recently on Dark Skies on NBC, and I was fortunate enough to have done a scene with him, spent a couple of hours or more with him, a really, really nice guy. And, of course, he did a lot more than Dark Skies. He did A Few Good Men, Sling Blade, The Grifters, which was a fabulous movie, Good Morning Vietnam, uh, and on and on. He's got a long list. Uh, came to acting late in life and has passed on uh, a heart attack at 54, J.T. Walsh. Very sad. Now, um, again, I am going to have continuing comments for you on this Mars Global Explorer story, and it, believe me, believe me, does not stop here, not by a long shot. So you'll be hearing more about this next week, but I thought the interview with... Uh, uh, Dr. Michael Mellon was um, particularly um, revealing and interesting. And I'll, I'll use those those words. It was certainly professionally done, but I, I speak now of the content of uh, uh, Dr. Malin's, um, uh interview. I, I, I just thought it was a bit of a dance. And uh, I would love to... Uh, Dr. Malin, if you're out there, I would, I would very much... Uh, like to interview you personally, and if you can find the time, I can find the time, and I'll leave it at that. Maybe some of you kind people out there would fire some email at Dr. Malin and let him know that I would be very interested in interviewing him personally. Now, scientist, author, and guide to sacred sites throughout the world Greg Braden has been featured on television and radio programs nationwide. He has two books that uh, I know many of you know about, one called Awakening to Zero Point and Walking Between the Worlds. They've received wide acclaim as definitive texts 
uh, uh, marrying ancient uh, tra traditions, modern science, religion, and spirituality into a unified view of daily life. Professional careers as a geologist and aerospace engineer provide Greg with the unique ability to guide us through our ancient science of inner technology, offering an original wisdom, moving us beyond the challenges of earth changes, health, and relationship into the greatest possibilities of human experience. Here is, from Florida, Greg Braden. Greg, welcome to the program. Good morning, Art. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. I'm very happy to have you. With your background, um, perhaps you would take a moment. Uh, you were, after all, an aerospace engineer. I take it you have followed the Mars story and the Cydonia story and the face and the controversy and all the rest of it. Uh, well, I have, Art. Actually, I, um, uh, 1990, I, I left uh, the corporation that actually built the, the probes that are doing the photography. They, the uh, Martin Marietta Aerospace had built uh, the Viking probes back in the 70s. Right. Uh, in 76, and they're playing a key role in, in this most recent mission. And uh, what I have to confess is from my location, I, I uh, was unable to find this last hour's interview. So I'm... I'm kind of curious now, just from uh, from listening to you, what uh, kind of what was the gist of uh, of the interview? What what was uh, what was happening with this latest? Well, Dr. Malin uh, indicated that it would be for him a high point in his career uh, were he able to uh, image Cydonia and prove, for example, that the phase on Mars is not a natural thing, and that he would boy get it out automatically like this. He said, in my opinion. It's going to be uh, about one in 50 million that it's um, not natural. And he said that would be like hitting the $50 million lottery. Uh, now, when you listen to other scientists, uh, Greg, mm -hmm. they come up with numbers almost as strong on the other side, right. in, in, you know, indicating that the work they have done, very extensive with what we have, indicates there is very little chance uh, that these objects are... Um, are natural at all. Oh, how interesting. Uh, so, so you know, I noted that. Uh, that and then, of course, he said we may not be able to image it at all. There are no guarantees, in which case I just have to say I'm sorry. Mm. Now, my comment to Linda and my comment again tonight is that examine the lives of most people who win $50 million in the lottery, since that was his analogy. It ruins their lives, generally. They blow the money, they get into drugs, or they start drinking, or they, in some way or another, are not prepared for it. Now, I happen to be a believer in the Brookings study. Uh, you know about that. And I, I'm familiar with that, yes. Yes, uh, and I think that it is as operative today as it was the day it was written. I don't think very much about society has really changed, other than a few good E.T. movies and Independence Day and that kind of thing. Uh, I think there would be great disruption to religious institutions, scientific institutions, uh, and you're free to disagree with me totally on this, uh, uh, Greg. Um, well, Art, uh, this is, uh, once again, synchronicity chimes in, and as I was thinking about how we may lead in to our discussions tonight, uh, this couldn't have been a more opportunity or a more opportune way uh, to do this because... Uh, what we're, the discussion we're going into now, I thought we might have on the last of our four hours, <laughs> and, and why not start right there and then just move forward? 
Sure. I, I believe uh, this is an example uh, of, of a question that I ask. I actually just uh, wrote an entire article about this in, uh, in our most recent newsletter. Okay. And the question I posed is this. It's a more general question. Why is it that the discoveries that hold the greatest potential for bringing peace into our world uh, are being delayed? And I believe the face on Mars is one of those, certainly the opening of the chambers under the Sphinx, uh, the, the newly discovered chambers uh, in the Great Pyramid, and, and the excavation of what appear to be archaeological sites under the ice in Antarctica. Uh, and the bottom line for all of those art is if any one of those were to come to fruition publicly... Then uh, we've got a Brookings problem. Well, what, what would happen is we would never see ourselves the same again and oh, in that no, moment. Right. And again, uh, right. from previous interviews, you, you uh, may recall, or listeners may recall, I'm an optimist. Do you think, I know you are, but do you think it, uh, one of these discoveries, uh, let's pick one, uh, uh, I, I, I don't care. Um, let's, uh, let's, okay, let's go to Egypt and talk about keys, and let's say that sure. they, they somehow get authorized to dig under the left paw of the Sphinx, and they find, oh my God, the Hall of Records. Right. Which that, indicates, that... which indicates that we are not by far the first civilization on the planet, that they have come and gone, and the Hall of Records is thought by many, Greg, and check me if I'm wrong, to be kind of a... A last um, uh, will and testament of a civiliza civilization for some future civilization. Right. Is is that? It, that's accurate. There are subtext that suggests that the uh, there are many halls of records, and that the particular one under the Sphinx uh, may contain a continuous record of human history for the last fifty thousand years or so prior to its closing uh, around the Ice Age, about 10,500 years ago. Mm -hmm. So if, uh, and that's a perfect example, if that were done uh, in front of, of uh, live public scrutiny, uh, you know, covered by CNN and the Fox networks, uh, which are proposing to do just, just that, oh, yes. and in that moment, humanity never can look at itself the same again. All of a sudden, we're not... We're not Egyptians and Americans and blacks and whites and Native Americans. All of a sudden, we're, we're human with a collective history. And if we're to believe what the text suggests, uh, uh, we're on a collective path toward uh, a, a great turning point that is uh, apparently very close at hand. And we'll, we'll lead into that for the rest of the evening. Oh, I believe that. Well, if... And, and the reason I believe, and this is the, the question I pose, uh, why is it that these discoveries with potential, the greatest potential for peace are being delayed? Uh, my question is, are we really ready? Are we really ready to redefine our history? Are we really I, ready? I, I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in your answer. Uh, what I believe, <laughs> I, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing both sides of the story. And what I'm seeing is there are uh, many more people that are ready and a handful of people, it appears, that are, are reluctant uh, and even in the, the power structures, I'm seeing a lot of disagreement within the power structures uh, in the past that have said, we're not ready. And now there are some that say, well, maybe this is the time if we're ever going to yeah. do it. Maybe. Uh, let me, let me um, give you uh, an example of why I feel the way I do. And I want you to jump in and you just jump all over me anytime you okay. want to, all right? I get mail by <laughs> bins. I get bins of mail at a time. Every time we go to the post office we have bins of mail. Thousands and thousands of letters. Uh, 
And about 20% of those letters, Greg, are from uh, devout Christians uh, who think that I'm damn near the devil uh, incarnate, uh, or that I am, and that because I discuss the things that I discuss, the possibilities, for example, that you and I are talking about right now, that I'm going to go straight to hell without passing go, that I'm deceived, and that I'm working for the devil. 20%. Greg, 20%. And, and now, what, what, what's the reason that, that, that they would give for that? What, well, any, any, Greg, uh, the discovery that we just talked about as an example in, uh, in Egypt. In Egypt. Um, what do you think that would do to those who take the word of the Bible literally? Well, this is, again, Art, this is a perfect lead-in for what we're doing tonight. Because <laughs> because what happened, and this is the key, uh, and why I've really put a lot of thought into the way we can approach this tonight. 1,700 years ago, Art, key elements of our most sacred texts were taken out of the open literature. And the technology, the belief systems, the history, yep. the, the science that we have developed since that time are based, at very best, they're based in incomplete understandings of our relationship with our world and with one another. All right, 1,700 years ago, right? 1,700 years ago. Why do you think think 1,700 years ago they got real revisionist? Why do you think that? Uh, You know, I've, I've gone back and forth. I've looked at the text to see exactly why. This was in the year 325 A.D., during the time of Constantine. Yes. Uh, we know of at least 25 uh, of what today we would call biblical texts and at least 20 supporting texts. And this is where it gets really important. They weren't necessarily biblical texts. They were supporting technical documents that were removed uh, in the year 325 A.D. And the, and the texts that were left were rearranged. 700 years later, they were translated to the languages of the West poorly translated, even further confusing uh, our relationship with, with our world, uh, our heritage, and, and between one another. But, Greg, would you agree there, there was absolutely intentional uh, revisionist uh, action? If I'm to believe the historical texts, Art, that, that's what it says. And you I have, have, to, you have to believe, then you have to believe it was intentional, right? Well, if I'm to believe the text, and what I know, Art, is that seldom do we know the whole story. And, and if I'm to believe the text the way they read now, I'd have to say yes. And there was probably more to it that, that we, we haven't really had. Then, then I would have to say, I would have to say, okay, fine. Uh, why? Well, why? Why revise history at about 1,700 years? Why? You know, I don't know why that particular date. I don't know. Uh, no, I'm not, not asking that. Why do it at all? For, what's the motivation? Well, the intent in, in the open literature, the intent was that there were redundant texts. They were confusing. They were mysterious. They didn't make sense to the to the common people. And that's exactly what we're seeing today: uh, is people believing that they can interpret our ex- experience of life for us. So, uh, so in 1,700 years ago, they were saying, you know, the average man really isn't capable of understanding this kind of material. Let's, let's make it simple for him. And we're kind of seeing that, that same thing uh, again today. And, and one of the places um, where, on the one hand, this happened, on the other hand, it may not make that much difference now because those texts were also 
the basis for what later became the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were the basis for the Nag Hammadi libraries, mm -hmm. the great libraries in, in Lhasa. Uh, by the way, we're, uh, we're going there in April, and uh, next time we do a show, I hope to have some new information directly from those libraries to, to share with you. Because the information was so key, it, it wasn't uh, relegated to a single text art. It was, uh, it was very well known before 1,700 years ago. So it, at the very best, and, and this is what leads us right into our discussions tonight, at the very best, our view of our world today, our science, our technology, mm -hmm. uh, our history, is based in incomplete information. So what I'd say to people who are adamant uh, about uh, looking at the text, I, I agree 100%, go back uh, pre-1700 years ago and look at the original texts. And, uh, uh, incomplete, uh, Greg, uh, how about willfully incorrect? Would you go for that? In some cases, that may be. And what are, uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm less concerned with that now. Well, the, the reason I'm harping on that uh -huh. is because I think I know the reason why everything was revised when you suggest it was. Why, why do you say that? Well, I say that because I think that what we've been discussing tonight, um, uh, for example, a discovery in Egypt mm -hmm. would be as disruptive to society as the truth would have been continuing way back when. Oh, I agree. You do? To society as we know it today. Yes, sir. So a key portion, are, and this, this is uh, where I believe so much of the discussion about this time in history uh, is is being overlooked a key portion of these texts was regarding what today we might call an inner technology uh, it's the technology right. Right. to literally it's the technology to intentionally change body chemistry to in intentionally change uh, genetic ordering intentionally oh, yes. shift immunity within our oh, bodies yes. oh all of so, these things yes I know um, so, but these imply a very technologically advanced ancient civilization oh, pre precisely so what's happening are is we're witnessing all of these changes and uh, just one more thing Greg sure. maybe even a civilization that could put a monument on Mars precisely uh, and if we're to believe the text that that's precisely what happened and we can we can come back to that. What I'd like to do uh, is lay out for the listeners where, where I'd like to go, and then let's jump back in. All right, we will do that. We're getting uh, close to the bottom of the hour. Uh, Percentage-wise, do you know how many people it took to um, start the American Revolution? Do I know? Uh-huh. I know it took uh, just a handful. Uh, nowhere near 20%, Greg. No. Nowhere near 20%. All right, um, hold on. We'll be back to you. I know I'm kind of hung up on that. But I'm so in touch with all of you out there, and 80% of you I, I know are going to say, Baloney, I'm ready. Man, I can handle it. Give me an ancient civilization. Let me know that I was genetically constructed from somebody else. I don't have a problem with that. 80% of you. But fully, 20% of you couldn't even begin to handle it. I rest my case. This is Coast to Coast AM. Kingdom of Nye, 
more Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Here again is Art. Back now to scientist and author Greg Braden. Welcome back, Greg. It's a pleasure to be back. Art, I have to say that was the fastest 20 minutes of discussion I think we've had uh, in a long time. It went by very quickly. Yes. Uh, well, it's. I think it's at the very root of everything else that we talk about. I mean, we can discuss uh, the evidence for past civilizations, and I think there's damn good evidence. We can discuss the fact that they may have left artifacts on the moon that might have had space travel, might have had genetic altering uh, capabilities. We could discuss the possibility of extraterrestrial visitors who have tampered with our genetics or may even be our creators, for all we know. But whatever we're talking about, the Hall of Records, you name it, it all comes down to the same thing. Uh, is society prepared to accept this knowledge uh, without toppling? Art, this is, this is exactly uh, the place. I, actually, I thought we might end up here in about four hours in our discussion. <laughs> and uh, so we're, we're beginning here. Who knows where we'll go? I believe this is the opportunity of, uh, of discussions like this and of a program like, like yours. And I agree with you. I believe there are more people who are ready to uh, embrace the possibility of, of a, a heritage much greater than we've ever been led to believe, relatively few people who believe we're not ready for it, and those few, uh, in many instances, are the ones who are dictating the policies oh, yes. that are preventing us from, from, from accessing that heritage. And I believe, uh, and I've seen this uh, in my own program, this is the 12th year now that I've offered these programs in, in one form or another, they watch the programs. They listen to, to shows like this. I'm sure. And, and I believe if, if we develop this information responsibly and, uh, and say, yes, um, maybe that information was taken from us 1,700 years ago. Maybe, maybe it wasn't. I think it's how we go about embracing it and implementing it into our lives today that determines how quickly uh, it, it is actually acknowledged and made public. And I, this is good. You're going to be the optimist. I'm going to be the pessimist. I, I'm going to, for example, say now, Greg, I'm even willing to entertain the notion that there is a cabal of some sort, uh, generally separate from our elected representative government, that is uh, preventing uh, this information from coming forth. Okay. In other words, um, I, I don't think, for example, the Clinton administration would prevent this kind of information. No, but I, I think I this has been controlled by a group of uh, people or organizations for a long time. I, I'm starting to sound like Richard Hoagland. <laughs> but I really think that I, I can embrace that possibility. Well, it, it ties back into what we were talking about earlier. 1,700 years ago, when this information was was taken out of our general text. It was it was relegated to secret societies, mystery schools, priesthoods there you go. That, that have evolved over time. There what I'm go. saying now, Art, is that you and and me and our listeners in this generation, we have a choice now because because we have the opportunity to rise above what that means and find a a, a more positive way to acknowledge it. Say, okay, it happened 1,700 years ago. This is now. Let's bring this wisdom into our lives now. Let's integrate it into our societies responsibly, into our technologies, and let's take humanity to places that we've only dreamed of in conscious memory because we've already been angry. We've already uh, chastised 
those who uh, you know have, have kept this from us before. We're, I think we have the choice now to uh, to move in a new direction and to do this a new way. And and again, maybe that's just my the optimist in me. I, I've seen this happen before in smaller groups. I am going to be going on a cruise uh, in May mm-hmm. with uh, Dr. Zahi Hawass, uh, who is the Antiquities Director at Giza, and uh, Graham Hancock, Robert Baval, Daniel Brinkley, and I'm going to be moderating a debate between these gentlemen. Every prospect, some one of them, or even me, may be going into the sea. <laughs> uh, that was a comment made, by the way, by Dr. Hawass. It's cold water up there, right? It's cold water indeed. Now, I will have an opportunity to ask Dr. Hawass any and all questions I wish to. Uh, if you have that opportunity, Greg, yes. what would you ask him? I would probably ask him the same thing uh, that, that you are going to ask him. I would ask uh, if that chamber has been opened in, in recent history. Answer uh, no. Yes or no? No, the answer is no. The, well, that's my understanding. The answer is no. I was just quoted on uh, the World Wide Web as having said yes, and really? we had been in there. And uh, <laughs> Really? Uh, that was just a couple of weeks ago. Was that an accurate quote? It was not accurate. We were just there. We came home in December, and to the best of my knowledge, uh, when we left, it had not been opened, although uh, I believe we're very close. I am answering as Zahi would. I didn't say that was necessarily what I believed. Uh, Zahi would say no, and then I asked him another question. I've got it on videotape when I was there. Uh-huh. I said, um, Dr. Hawass, what evidence is there that uh, at one time uh, this may have been Atlantis? And his answer uh, in good, strong, Egyptian-accented voice was, Art, never one drop of sand has, has ever indicated Atlantis was anywhere near here. You know, Art, this ties back. The first question you asked me uh, when we came on almost an hour ago, if we were to, uh, to confirm this face on Mars, which by some estimates is being dated at over 50,000 years old, uh, which incidentally is is uh, the same age that the uh, uh, the Hall of Records, the continuous record of human history, over fifty thousand years. Or if uh, by the way, how do we know that? How do we know it's that old? We we don't know for sure. This is what some of the some of the records, as we go back and look at the dates and the records of Herodotus and uh, uh, Greek historians, and we piece the dates together. These are the kinds of dates. That we're coming up with, and it's all uh, cir- circumstantial evidence for right now. Mm. Uh, new Earth imaging radar is showing vast archaeological sites, what look to be vast, ar- uh, like vast archaeological sites, underneath uh, several miles of ice and uh, Antarctica. Uh, and again, my question is, if there if would be another one that would do it, by the way. Well, if if we're really serious about understanding our history, why? Why are these kinds of discoveries being delayed? My belief is mm-hmm. that we're still preparing. And I, I had this very discussion with uh, Graham Hancock, Robert Bouval, uh, John West. We met in Boulder, Colorado twice in, in 1997 and in private meetings. And what I shared with them is it's the perspective I'd like to bring to this discussion uh, this evening. If, if these cultures and if these technologies were indeed here, um, Yes. 50,000 years ago, uh, we know, for example, that uh, Australian Aboriginal DNA can be traced back at least 35,000 years directly. So we know we were here at least 35,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. There's a good chance, Art, that these 
societies and the sciences were based on a very t- different technology than what we, than the path that we have chosen today. And my offering to Buval and, and Hancock and, and West was that we may even accelerate the process of understanding uh, what's in these chambers if we understand this technology and that it's a technology we're just now beginning to suspect. Our own science is documenting this inner technology today, and, and we'll get into that for the rest of the evening. Dr. Hovind, or do you know the name Dr. Hovind? I, I do not. I'm not familiar with that name. Uh, he is a creationist. Hmm. And as a matter of fact, I think they're going to repeat that program this weekend. We have new policy folks of repeating older programs now, so it'll be like seven days a week of new shows. Anyway, I think he'll be on this weekend, I think. And you know what he thinks, Greg? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not familiar with his work. Uh, he thinks that uh, we are 6,000 years old, not a year older. 6,000 well, th- years. That, you know, uh, this is a synchronicity again, Art. I was just going to say those exact words because you asked the implications. There are some belief systems that believe Earth is uh, is exactly 6,000 years old. Right. And then we look at the aboriginal um, oral traditions that go back many thousands of years. We look at their DNA that goes back 35,000 years. We, uh, we look at the implications in our own history. I and mean, we believe that we're pretty liberal here in the West in some respects. And, and we look at uh, what happened with John West and Robert Schock trying to date the Sphinx at only 8,000 years old. And we're talking about now dating that uh, pre-Ice Age the implications. I believe this is the generation where all this changes. That this is the generation where we are living the past paradigm, and we're developing a new one, and that's happening in the in the presence of one another in this generation. Next generation, it'll be a little easier because the new ideas now have been offered. But this is the generation. I think history will look back at this generation, Art, and they're going to say this is where the choices were made to embrace. Uh, the inner technology, rather than giving our power away to the machines that we've built, this is the generation that chose to uh, to really embrace the uh, the history and the heritage that uh, that we have behind us and and carry it forward. I Greg, think that's, Greg, yeah. what social signs could you point to for me mm-hmm. to um, substantiate that that this generation is going to be the one? I'm. I'm looking at what I look at uh, are, are patterns of energy, and uh, we can look at those many different ways. Um, patterns of energy. Almost universally, ancient texts, traditions, calendars point to this time in history as being unique in terms of Earth and human experience. They, oh, I, I think something's going to happen. Sure, they, they point to all kinds of changes that we can expect. I'm looking at social changes, oh. political changes, economic changes. I'm, I'm looking at uh, you know the, the very obvious things that. The breaking down of, uh, of communist uh, ideals, uh, the way that families are restructuring the family units uh, globally, not just in the West. I'm looking at, uh, at how many new ideas, new kinds of ideas we've had to embrace to, to bring us to the point where we are right now. And for me, that's very exciting. What I see is a, a relatively small handful of people who are holding on to the old ideas that we're not ready, and they're watching really carefully, Art, to see how people embrace the new ideas. Let me give you an example. Greg, this is the same handful of people that burned witches at the stake. 
It, it very well could be, Art. It very well could be. <laughs> it is. Oh, it is. In, it is. in the mid-'70s, I was working in the oil and gas industry uh, as a geologist, and I was also working as an engineer uh, on the side developing free energy devices with, with some other researchers you may have even had on your show. Now, there's an interesting combination. Uh, you worked as a geologist looking for oil and stuff, and work on free energy at the same time? At the same time. In, in the 90s, I worked uh, in the defense. Yeah, I'm surprised you weren't burned at the stake. Well, you know, in, in the 90s, I worked for the Defense Department, uh, uh, <laughs> working on the MX missile, and at the same time was developing programs uh, based in the ancient sciences of compassion. You worked on the MX? Uh, I worked on, uh, on the Peacekeeper missile from 85 until 90. Was my uh, uh, what? what, what I'm, I'm curious, Greg. Um, we're going to get off to the side here, but sure. I can't help but ask. I've never talked to anybody who did that. What uh, what sort of mental processes uh, does one experience as you work on a uh, world-ending weapon? Well, Art, the first thing I ask myself is why me? Of, of all people, with my background, my beliefs, my understandings, and peace and compassion, Yes. why did I find myself in that project? And I think that's exactly why, because I had such a... At that time, such a charge on um, such a judgment about that kind of technology. Uh, I had just read a, a book by Carl Sagan called *The Cold and the Dark*. Yes. Uh, which was a, a, a modeling of uh, scenarios between the U.S. and the Soviets in the event of uh, the nuclear war. And uh, when I hired on with uh, in, in the aerospace industry, I believed I was going to work on space programs. And what happens, Art, if you've ever worked around these before, they, they hire you, and then you wait uh, four or five or six months for your clearance before you ever know what project you're assigned to. Well, you did work on a space program. It's just that your craft came down pretty quick. <laughs> no, I, I worked on others. I worked on, uh, on, the, uh, on the Magellan probes. I, I, I understand. Space that, that, that was a joke. Uh, I know it was. I, I should have taken a minute to, <laughs> to laugh. It, it was it was a, a really very difficult time in my life. And when the when my assignment came down, you know, I thought I'd be on the space shuttle or, or something like that. And they said, well, you you know, you'll write software uh, in support of the Peacekeeper. And yeah, I thought, the peacekeeper. I thought Peacekeeper. You know, that sounds great. What's that? And they said, well, it's it's what we call the MX missile. And I thought, my God, nuclear winter generator. And. Um, and I, I had to work through that. I had many sleepless nights. That's uh, what I was asking. Sure, many sleepless nights. Uh, my wife at that time would see me wake up in bed uh, sweating at night because I said, why in the world am I, am I doing this? And what I came to understand, and, and many listeners already know this, the technology in and of itself isn't good or bad. It's, it's how it's applied. And, and at that time, Art, I'm not saying that... Wait a minute now. Does that statement really apply to the MX. Uh, in other words, I can't think of any more negative side of nuclear technology than we could discuss than the MX or the SS-18 or 20 or whatever, you know, on the other side or whatever. Well, nuclear what, missiles that, if used, would... Um, well, you tell me. Well, what, if, what, if there had been a full exchange, uh, Greg, what would have occurred? Or if uh, there could still be one, for that matter. I think well, it's very what, dangerous. To... What I'll say, Art, is as in many cases, seldom do we have all the information when we're having these, these conversations. And, and uh, what has just come out, uh, and this was actually part of the discussion I thought we'd get into later tonight, uh, the reason that so many Eastern Bloc countries were so ready to let go of uh, the nuclear arsenal was because they had something even better that today we call biological weapons. There was a, a dateline, just did a special on it two nights ago. Yeah. Um, and 
it was uh, for whatever reason. It, it's the path that we chose, Art. It, we did have relative peace and stability during the 20 or so years that we were doing this, and the choices were made then to back down on all sides, and and that's precisely what happened. Uh, what we didn't hear is that there are other things in the wings. But at the time that you were doing that work, you didn't know any of this. We did. Actually, at the time we were doing the work, uh, we knew that, and um, it was it was a very personal thing for me. I thought about leaving. You knew that the communist bloc was going to break up then? Oh, no, not that. Certainly not that. See, that, we, that's we, what we, I mean. In other words, at the time that you did the work, right. the possibility was still thought to be strong that we could have a nuclear war. We knew that there were other weapon systems that were being developed based on electromagnetics and based on um, bacteriological right, weaponry. Well, that's a whole separate discussion. It, it is, and that, and that these very quickly would be uh, would be moved into obsolescence. We we really we knew that even before the program was finished, we knew that. But it didn't make any I mean difference for me. I was still uh, you know writing software to support that, and for whatever reason, that's the path that our consciousness chose mm -hmm. that uh, path was a relative a relatively stable path during that time it it held that stability until the time when both sides would back down uh, during the Reagan administration I am I am not uh, in any way criticizing and I think Ronald Reagan um, forced the end of communism I thought thought that for a long time and the MX was one of the things that did the trick so I'm not criticizing that in any way. I was just sort of vaguely curious about the mental process you went through working on such a weapon. Well, I, I appreciate your sensitivity to that. It's a question that uh, I'm seldom asked, and it was uh, it was actually a, a really very challenging time in my life, um, especially because of my belief systems. And uh, and again, I think we find ourselves in those positions, and we have a really strong judgment. Regarding something, we often find ourselves in the presence of that, just so we can come to terms with uh, with what that judgment is all about. Did you get close to quitting? Uh, pardon me. Did you get close to quitting? I, um, not quitting, uh, reassigning. And uh, and again, my focus was always more on the, on the space the space program than uh, than defense, and the two were very closely related. And are today. <laughs> at, at that time, well, they they were, and uh, and they were good companies. Um, you know, we we did a good job, and uh, and the the program was almost obsolete before it ever completed because new technologies were being uh, SDI was coming in. We, uh, we were also part of, of the uh, the SDI platforms that were being developed, uh, Star Wars Defense Initiative, at that time, which is that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> it is, and I, I would simply ask you: if we were attacked, if there was a full-scale attack from Russia, for example. Do we have uh, enough of SDI in place to uh, shoot down the missiles? You know, uh, Art, no one really openly has ever said that we ever deployed SDI. I know. Uh, what, what I know is that know. when we tested them, yes. uh, you know, they went up on the shuttles for testing, and once they were testing, many of them were left in place. And to what extent and how much uh, some of the programs were never developed, others... Um, uh, were developed to to greater or lesser extents, um, and, and I, I really believe. Uh, and the reason I kind of hedge on that is because I believe that FCI was never implemented for that purpose. I think it was for for something much different than that. Uh, and that too is another discussion, and maybe we'll have it. We're at the top of the hour. I'm Art Bell. Greg Braden is my guest, and this, of course, is Coast to Coast AM.
from the Kingdom of Nye, Coast to Coast AM continues with Art Bell. Once again, here's Greg Braden. Greg? I'm here. All right. Um, I guess we're going to uh, backtrack a little bit. And regardless of, uh, and, and, and uh, by the way, I want to say one more thing. Having said everything I said last hour to you, mm-hmm. I am still in favor, regardless of what I think the consequences are going to be, of plowing ahead and learning the truth, no matter what the truth may turn out to be. As in my art, and what I wanted to do just before the top of the hour, we'd, we'd started uh, a conversation and we digressed just a little bit, and I wanted just to, to have some completion with that before we go on. Let us do that. Um, the example I'd be, well, I had two examples. Uh, when I was working in oil and gas uh, and also developing <laughs> free energy yes. uh, techniques on the side, what we discovered, and I believe this applies to, to this plowing ahead uh, with the truth of our of our heritage and our history yes. is that when we took those free energy proven, uh, demonstrable, uh, tangible, uh, uh, real technologies, mm-hmm. we uh, working prototypes, and we took them uh, into the the organizations that would be responsible for implementing them. Yes, when they saw them uh, as as threatening. Yes. To what they had at that time, yes. uh, that's when we ran into the problems. And when we went in with them and said, look, this is a possibility. Let's work together to develop this and implement this the way it makes sense. It was received in a much different vein, and those programs are continuing today. And I believe that this... this uh, what, what, have, what, what, what would be some examples, Greg? Uh, power systems... Uh, uh, with with no moving parts, for example, simply tuned to the pulse of the earth. And uh, I'm sure you've had guests on your show who have... I've, I've heard a lot of talk, and, of course, they have meetings where they display these things and so mm-hmm. forth and so on, but I have yet to see the first practical application. Have, so, you, have you seen it? Uh, can, in other words, can I go sure. out and buy one of these machines today? I don't know if you can buy them in the States. They're, they're being developed overseas. Uh, where? For... Um, 12-volt power systems for agricultural pumps, for example, in third-world countries, uh, power systems in in uh, homes that... Uh, free, are you talking about free energy devices or, or over-unity devices? Well, there's a lot of discussion about the two, and that's that's going to lead us into a, a, you know, a whole new conversation. But what I'll say is... Uh, they're much more widely accepted. They're being developed now as, as alternatives. They're working them into heavily industrialized third-world countries where they, they can't bring power lines. They're not going to burn kerosene at, at a gallon a minute. And uh, uh, for relatively light applications, and again, I'm, I'm saying 12-volt uh, uh, agricultural pumps, you know, things like that. They're not powering. 12 volts from what, Greg? 12 uh, volts from what's the question? The question is what's the device? Uh, 12-volt pumps pumping water up out of the ground. I'm sorry. Okay, the 12 volts being derived, the power source being derived from where? There are a number of technologies. Some of them are simply tuned to the earth. Some of them are tuned to the atmospheric earth potential. Okay, Uh, I know. You're talking about Tesla stuff. Well, some of it's Tesla uh, Tesla technology. Keeley, uh, John Keeley uh, was right around the same time. Reich, Reif, you know, all these uh, researchers were all working around the same time. I, I know of no technology of the type that you just talked about that's actually being used um, 
a power derived uh, from the Earth uh, or from the atmosphere that generates 12 volts or 1 volt, for that well, matter. I'd the, the problem with uh, it, it, the voltage is easy. It's the amperage that's the challenge, and that's, that's where the Tesla coils and things like that. But uh, even the voltage, Greg, I, I, look, I, I know about the history of Tesla, uh -huh. but I have never seen one of these devices, and I have begged to see them. Well, you know, they, they've been on, uh, where I saw them first, in Colorado Springs in 1988, at the Red Lion uh, Hotel at a, yep. uh, a Tesla conference. I know, I know, I hear about these things. Give me the name of a company and the number here on the air, if you wish, where I can order one of these. Well, I, I don't have it at my fingertips, sir, Art, and I'd be happy to, to dig that out for you. And uh, That's because I don't think they exist. You don't think they're there, huh? No, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't know. Well, I wish they were there, and I think they could. Sure. I think they could be there, Greg. That's that's an important difference. But but they are not there now, and um, uh, they may be at the conferences. And I know there's a lot of very interesting things that are pre presented. But uh, give me a company name, give me a number, let me order one of these devices, go out, stuff it in the earth, put up my antenna, whatever it is I have to do, get my voltage and even limited amounts of current, and I'll be a believer. Well, uh, I didn't know we were going to have that conversation tonight. I don't have it right here at my fingertips, and I'd be happy to get back with you on on that kind of information. Okay. What I'm saying is when that kind of information is taken into an existing power structure, how it's introduced makes all the difference in the world in terms of how it's received. Well, the you... fact of the matter is, uh, Greg, looking around America and the third world, and I've done a lot of travel in the third uh -huh. world, believe me, you know what they're doing? They're burning coal, they're burning sure. oil, they're burning fossil fuels, and I think they're going to keep doing it for another 45 years, uh, which is about when we're going to run out. Well, they, they know they can't do it that long, and that's, that's why I don't think it will happen for that long. But the, the same the concept that we're applying here, that's the same thing with, with history. If you go barging into the, uh, the, the power structures and say, look, your history is going out the window. This is the history we're going to... Hmm to use from this point forward, we've just gotten nowhere. We've done that before, and, and we've seen that. Now, I think we have the opportunity to say uh, to Zahi Hawass, for example. Uh, it's a perfect example. We were just in Egypt, Art, and, and we saw this. The Egyptians, some of them, some of them don't care about any of this. They, they could care less. Oh, I know. Some of them are genuinely interested, and they're really frightened by what this means to Egypt, what it means to their history would it, it would it would it would very much disturb Egyptian history and belief systems um, and they would be a fine first example certainly so so what I'm saying what I found is that when we go and work with these people and say look you don't have all the information we don't have all the information let's work together get all the facts and from those facts let's move forward and see what makes sense that's much different than going in and saying your story doesn't work anymore. We're going to toss it out the window and we're going to implement this this new history. When uh, when we were there, I, I was in Egypt in uh, let's see, it was December of '96, and one of the m most mysterious uh, and by some estimates, John West uh, certainly believes it's one of the oldest sites outside of Giza is about 90 miles west of, of Luxor, uh, a little village of Abydos. And that's where we find the Seti I temple that's built on top of something even older that's called the Osirian, yes. uh, the Temple of Osiris, very non-Egyptian. You may have seen it when you were there this, uh, this last trip. I did not, but I, I know of it. 
Well, when we were there, it's been off limits uh, intermittently. It depends on on the political situation, things like that. We were there in '96. Uh, there was an archaeologist who was there. There's no uh, no dates, no hieroglyphics. This it's never really been dated. Uh, we know that there's a, another temple on top that's dated at 2800 BC. So this one has to predate that, and there wasn't supposed to be anything happening there, uh, certainly on that magnitude. And what the archaeologist was doing, uh, he was saying, okay, let's look at empirical dating methods. Assuming the Nile River floods once a year, which it has throughout recorded uh, human history, right. uh, he said, let's count the number of, uh, of layers of silt on top of this. And he said, even if, even if there were times in history where the Nile flooded twice a year, yes. we'd be off by 50%. We'd still have some idea of what we're talking about. Well, when, when we were there in 96, they counted our 22,000 layers of Nile silt on top of this temple. So if we assume one per year, one Nile flood per year, we're talking about 22,000 years. If they're off by 50%, it's still 11,000 years. And that kind of data, uh, the Egyptian uh, archaeologists, they have to look at that. I, I believe, Greg, that it that in fact there were prior high technologically achieving civilizations on Earth that may have come and gone many times. I believe that almost uh, without question. I believe that as well, Art, and that's precisely where the rest of our our conversation tonight uh, is going to lead to because. Up until 1,700 years ago, we knew pretty much what they knew. We understood fundamental key relationships between ourselves, our world, uh, the way that we function within our world. And when those left, when they were taken out of our text 1,700 years ago, we developed a science, a mathematics, a technology that it's the best we could do with what we had, and it's based on incomplete information now, even though those texts were taken from us, as, as we're going back into the, the great libraries in Lhasa and Tibet, for example, or through the Nag Hammadi Library or, or the Dead Sea Scrolls or the, the Gnostic traditions or wherever the, uh, in Ethiopia, the translations in Ethiopia, wherever they're coming from, they're telling us about, they're reminding us of what I think many people always felt inside. That's just what you're saying, Art, that that our history predates uh, what our texts are saying to us and that we lived our lives much differently then than we do now. The reason this is important uh, is because I know you've had many guests on your show and I certainly have people that come to my conferences and my seminars and they're saying, well, Greg, what about the, the breakdown of the ozone layer and uh, high-frequency ultraviolet light? Okay, just before we, we're going to get to specifics, but sure. just before we delve into that, Greg, you must know of Professor Michio Kaku. I do not. I'm not familiar with you that name all right. All. He is one of the nation's premier theoretical physicists. Uh-huh. I interviewed him, I think, two or three days ago. He has a theory that I want you to listen to. All right. Um, that there are various levels of civilizations uh, scattered throughout the galaxy, the universe, that there are type zero civilizations, that would be us, the type that burn coal and oil and uh, use uh, raw materials to achieve their energy needs. Okay. Then there would be a type one civilization, which would have uh, harnessed the power of the planet in which it lives. Uh, the kind of thing that you were talking about a little while ago. All right. 
Then there would be a Type 2 that would harness the power of a sun. Uh, literally the power of a sun. And then there would be higher and higher levels of civilization. And it is his view, Greg, that there are countless numbers of Type 0 civilizations that never make it to Type 1. Precisely. They blow themselves to smithereens <laughs> or their environment is destroyed and they destroy themselves. And the odds of making it from Type 0 to Type 1, and he thinks we're on the cusp, by the way. Right? I agree. I agree 100%. I but he said the odds of any Type 0 getting to be a Type 1 are so close to zero that you wouldn't even want to hear them. I think we're about to blow those odds uh, right <laughs> yeah. out of the water. You're, you're my optimist. <laughs> well, no, I, I agree. I agree with what he's saying, and this is the technology we've gotten this far. We've backed down from uh, from the, the global destruction of, of a nuclear war, for example. Now, who knows what, what we're going to do with the biological weapons. Okay, so that means you must know where those hundred suitcase nukes are. Art, what I know is this. <laughs> Whatever happens in our world out there, yes. we have to reconcile it inside of our bodies. We were left the inner technology to know how to do that. That's the piece that's being overlooked by the scenarios of solar flares, of ozone breakdowns. Uh -huh. Oh, so many ways to kill ourselves. Actually, you mentioned the ideal one a little bit earlier, and I think you're absolutely correct. I don't think that our peril will end up being nuclear dust, uh, radioactive dust. I think that more likely the little things will get us, and we are actively, uh, whether you people want to believe it or not, uh, with black ops, creating the nastiest, meanest killing machines that you can't even see, biological killing machines, and uh, all it would take is one accident and... Our tombstone goes up uh, for a type zero. Art, this is this is the crux uh, on the, the Dateline <laughs> program. Uh, I think it was two, this is Friday night. Right. It was Wednesday Wednesday evening. Yes, sir. They had a, a Soviet defector who was in charge of biological uh, weapons production and yes. defected to the U.S. That's right. He said there were to to inoculate. The the interviewer asked the question, "Can't we inoculate ourselves against these?" He said, "To do that." You would have to inoculate yourself, uh, our entire Western uh, or you know global civilization, against at least 52 uh, viruses and bacteria. And he said no one right now can survive 52 immunizations. This is the crux of the the whole conversation that we're having here. Yep. We can externally try to fix all of those all of those biological entities or and, and this is the part that, that's being missed. I'm going to say this again and again. Or we shift internally, moving ourselves out of resonance, out of the range of, of where those things are meaningful to our bodies. And, and that's precisely what we're seeing happening. Well, it's a race. Because, and my question is, and, and this is where we're going to go for the rest of the evening, is there a new race, a new species, rather, of, of human that's being birthed among us right now, and I believe the answer is yes. I believe that because if we define ourselves genetically the way that we always have, something has happened since 1995 to human DNA documented in the open literature. It's not being well publicized. And that something, that change, is what it is that sets us apart from those 
inordinate statistics that say we'll never make it. Many call them the Millennium Children. Uh, it's happening within our generation, Art, and that is, it's called spontaneous genetic mutation in the open literature, and this is the mystery to modern science. We've seen genetic changes happen at the beginning of a new generation in response to something in the old generation. Now, you're making a, a, a pretty wild statement. You're saying that we are presently undergoing a genetic change. It's backed up. It's well Greg, documented. Can you, can you prove that? I certainly can, Art. I've, I've uh, uh, pulled together a few notes I've documented in a new book, and it's, it's widely publicized in the open literature. It's not getting the attention because researchers are viewing the changes in, as discrete non-related, uh, independent anomalies. All right, Greg, listen, uh, we're at the bottom of the hour. Sure. Uh, pull out your notes. Because I've got them right here. All right, when we come back, we'll, <laughs> we'll discuss the specifics of what genetic change uh, has been documented. It's going to be an interesting point-counterpoint kind of night. I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM. It really is fun interviewing such an optimist, and oh, he is, uh, he's Greg Brayton, and he's a scientist, he's an author, he wrote Awakening to Zero Point and Walking Between the Worlds, and here he is once again, Greg, uh, welcome back, Sub Subject DNA. A pleasure to be back, Art, and I, I just have to say, my, my optimism isn't simply blind optimism, it's... It's, uh, it's based on uh, some leading-edge research, some of it's less than, than a year old, and, uh, and a very different view of uh, ancient texts and ancient traditions. Sure. Uh, what I'd like to say, Art, it's, it's 3.30 here on the East Coast. Yes, sir. Some people may be coming on or dropping off. Could I give out a couple of 800 numbers for those people? Oh, yeah, people? Uh, absolutely. Uh, your books, for example? Sure. Well, the, uh, uh, a lot of people are asking. We have a free newsletter that talks about many of these things. It gives uh, schedules of our talks around the country. You have a free newsletter? It's It's been free uh, for 12 years now. 1-800-637. Wait a minute. 1-800-637-5222. And for book, book tapes and videos, right. uh, 800-243-1438. Two four three one four three eight. Yes, that's for books and videos. Yes, and you actually, but you have a free newsletter. Uh, free newsletter, and, and uh, there's an article in in the current one uh, discussing this very topic. Are we ready to embrace uh, a new view of our history? And it's a pretty fascinating article. I think a lot of people might be interested in seeing that. Oh, I should say so. Um, so again, folks, let me uh, help you out. I know people ran for paper and pencil and stuff. Uh, free newsletter. Free, free, free. 1-800-637-5222, and I bet it's already busy. Books and tapes, including Awakening to Zero Point. That's a very popular book. How, how, how many books uh, uh, have you sold? You know, it's interesting art. We've done very little advertising. We've got about 60,000 in print right now. I believe that. Uh, um, wor worldwide. They're showing up all over the world. All right. Uh, books and tapes. 1-800-243-1438. All right. Uh, now... You made an incredible statement. You said that uh, there is evidence that human DNA is changing. Yes. So what is the evidence? This, this is the crux of, of our whole conversation tonight, Art, and I'm, I'm going to back up two sentences. I'm going to give a context to this, and we're going to move forward uh, with, with a tremendous amount of information here. All right. Almost universally, ancient traditions suggest 
that something unique is happening to Earth. You've certainly documented that in, in your book. I've done it in mine. And to the human body, to our bodies at this time in history, and that is the portion I believe that so many people uh, are, are uh, overlooking. When, when we're looking at this outrageous phenomenon and falling magnetics and solar flares and ozone breakdowns and new diseases, we're looking at it from the perspective of our, our bodies being stagnant, being what we've always seen and believed them to be. And uh, through the ancient traditions, the Mayan traditions, indigenous traditions, and now our own science is bearing witness to, to an amazing uh, uh, phenomenon and I'm a little surprised it's not making front page news in popular journals, although it is in technical journals. All right, well, I sure agree with you regarding what's going on. The uh, solar storms, the extremes of weather, I believe our weather to be changing, uh, right. the ozone layer deterioration, I know all about that. That's well documented uh, from space, in fact. Yeah. And on and on and on and on. So, yeah, the world is changing. But what you're telling us is we're changing with it and that our DNA is changing. What evidence of that do you have? Well, in 1953, we discovered what we call our human genetic code. And we discovered 62 possible codes that allow what we call carbon-based life. All right? And uh, uh, anyone who's in life sciences remembers when they studied that, and it's still being taught in school today, one of the great mysteries of our human genetic code is why so much of our code appears to be unused. Right, uh, that's true. Statistics uh, range about 30% uh, 30, uh, 30 are used, about 60% are unused. I think that's right, yeah. We've believed that, that they were um, simply vestiges of, of something maybe from, from our past and uh, really not well understood. Well, what researchers are documenting now, I'll lay out the generalities, we'll go into specifics, okay. is that those codes that we believe were uh, possibly vestiges of something we no longer need appear, at least in some documented cases, to be dormant codes that may be awakened by choices that we make uh, in terms of, uh, of our response. To the, to the challenges of life. Maybe the magnetics of Earth declining are a challenge or, or the, the breakdown of the ozone and high-frequency ultraviolet light. And this is it's relatively recently we've really begun to embrace the possibility that maybe we have a variable genetic code rather than a fixed code, and that variable code is what assures that we beat those odds that you just gave a little while ago of of whether or not we survive this time in history and we survive these great changes. And now, back to the best of Art Bell. I would accept the premise that, what? that there's a great deal of unused uh, DNA. I sure. accept the premise that we may change uh, and adapt to what our planet is becoming. I can accept all of that, uh, but what I would ask is, what scientific evidence do you have of actual genetic change? We'll go back, I'm going to go back to 1995, because this is when, uh, when and 95 is relatively recent, and then we'll bring it up uh, to even more current. Okay. 
1995 is, is, I think, uh, when I first began seeing the inklings of this published, and I was scouring the tech journals. Um, uh, and I'll just say right off, I'm not a geneticist, although I've had to learn a lot about chemistry and genetics to stay on top of, of this research. Uh, 1995, for the first time, to my knowledge, Art, there was a global blood study that was done that crossed geographic, age-defined, cultural, ethnic backgrounds. Uh, and, and the impetus for this blood study was the HIV virus. They were uh, researchers were were trying to determine really um, where this epidemic was going. So I think that was the driver. Right. What they discovered uh, surprised the researchers. It um, uh, it was published in uh, lay journals. Actually, the study was carried out uh, by the Aaron Diamond AIDS Research Center, in New York City. Okay. Uh, it was published in the Science Journal, Science News, Science Magazine, Nature, things like that. What they discovered was that at least 1%, now that's not a large percentage, and it, and it means that it happened, at least 1% of our global population that, that was tested had DNA that had mutated to the point where it was highly resistant to the HIV virus. They okay. wouldn't use the word immune although the resistance was measured up to 3,000 times the resistance of the average human uh, against the HIV virus. All right. Now, may I stop you? And sure. Um, I am very well aware that there are, uh, for example, in Africa, there are prostitutes that are virtually um, immune to the AIDS virus. They have proven this. All right. But I've seen no writings suggesting that this immunity was acquired through a mutated uh, a genetic structure. Where is that? that in, that's in other why words, why, why, how, how, are, how can we know that it's actually mutated in the time we've been watching, or even a generation or two, versus just the fact that we've got some people with a slightly different genetic structure in just the right place. Art, I, I couldn't have done it better. Your question is leading us right to where we're going. That's why this study is different. Okay. Because in this study, they noted two things. First of all, they, they noted how unusual it is for this to happen within the same generation uh, where, the, where the, the challenge, in this case the HIV virus, um, uh, has has been the problem. In other words, they would expect to see it maybe in the offspring of these people. What they noted in this uh, study, and there was a, a researcher named uh, Nathaniel Landau who backed this up, and then uh, there was further research done at the University of um, uh, Alabama in Birmingham, and I'll, I'll get into that in just a minute. They said that this is an example of what they were calling spontaneous genetic mutation. It was of recent evolutionary origin, and that's a direct quote from them. It appeared to have happened uh, within the lifetime of the individual rather than at birth in response to something uh, that was, it was introduced into their lives. The, the study at University of uh, Alabama, Birmingham, actually uh, has documented now five gene sets that appear to be uh, dormant in some people and turned on during the lifetime of others in response. And again, this is for, for HIV. They're looking at, uh, at the HIV that's virus. Fine. No, that's fine. In, in response to, uh, to the challenge of the HIV virus, they've actually um, uh, determined which at least five gene sets 
that are uh, enabled that have been disabled uh, prior to that. Now, the all right. So that would mean that they have two genetic studies of the, the the subjects that you're talking about. One showing a certain genetic uh, structure or or, or a certain uh, a set of gene sets, and a second study later showing the revised or changed or activated gene sets, uh, depending on how you want to put it. Is that what they have? Well, the, those are the two initial studies. Uh, the second one was done in, um, well, they were both done in 1996, and they, they were released right around August of 96. Um, this is important because it, it led to uh, a, a myriad of, of additional studies and these led into other areas that were not HIV-related. Some of them were cancer-related. Uh, you know, right. it, it goes on and on. What they're finding, uh, Art, is that in human DNA, in a DNA map, we have what are called um, uh, URF, unused reading frames. And, and that's simply, it's a technical term. It means there's a portion of human DNA that appears to be unused. Right. Those portions, those uh, of URFs, is where these new uh, uh, new kinds of, of DNA are appearing from, and it's happening so frequently now. There's actually a publication called Cytokine, C Y T O K I N E. Uh, and like you, and when I first began to hear this, I thought, okay, it happened once or twice. Uh, how much is this really happening? And uh, a publication called Cytokine is, is documenting, uh, it's maybe about a, a half inch thick every month, every 30 days it comes out, new amino acids that we've never seen before hmm. in, uh, in human population studies. And these new amino acids are allowing uh, tremendously enhanced immune systems. They're allowing cellular regeneration faster than, than we've ever documented in these kinds of populations before. And, uh, and it all appears to be related to, uh, to the outlook that these people have on the conditions of their lives. So what they're finding is that, indeed, there's something happening to, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we were told that anyone that tested positive for, for HIV would probably succumb to full-blown AIDS within 10 to 14 years. Right. That no longer is true, uh, and I believe, and maybe this is the optimist in me again, I believe that uh, that we will never, as a global population, succumb to AIDS because there's a part of us collectively we've chosen to enable that portion of ourselves to uh, to enable uh, physiologically or biologically uh, the conditions that render us, if, if not immune, at least highly resistant okay, to AIDS. Okay, Greg. Uh, all right, let me stop you there. Okay. We uh, are now giving to um, AIDS-infected people uh, a soup made up of AZT and protease inhibitors and other things. One other thing I can't recall. Uh, and I am told uh, by most scientists that the, particularly these uh, protease inhibitors, uh, in conjunction with the other drugs they already have, are actually able to eradicate the uh, HIV virus, to the degree that they can no longer measure it in the body. It doesn't mean it isn't latent, but they can no longer measure it. Right. And that is, these, uh, I think, uh, conventional wisdom, scientific uh, reason, that we are not having as many deaths of uh, AIDS. In fact, I think it's now down for the second 
year in a row, but that, that, that would be the amount of time that we've been using these new treatments. What you're suggesting is that we are becoming naturally um, uh, immune or building our immunity to AIDS, and that's why we're seeing fewer cases. The globally, AIDS, uh, deaths from AIDS that are recorded anyway, are down, uh, last year they were down 13% in 1997. I don't know where they are, uh, first two months of 98. We're just getting into this research art because now the question that these researchers were asking and where this research has led is some pretty astounding implications that tie right back into the ancient texts, right back into what happened 1,700 years ago, into a, a, a way of approaching life or a code of conduct, if you will, that allows our bodies the fullest expression of these genetic codes and and our our truest nature, our truest nature. Would would you suggest that um, without this cocktail they're giving to HIV infected people, we would be having now the same remission patterns, the same uh, lowering of uh, the number of new cases because of genetic change? I believe that because uh, because of the relatively few number of people that are taking the cocktail and because of the global decrease. Number one and number two, because in UCLA in 1996, um, and this is also reported in New England Journal of Medicine, there were children that were born HIV positive and went negative. And they didn't only go negative; it disappeared from their bodies. That is, that is a fact. They were not doing the cocktails, uh, and some of them happened within months. And the first one, uh, the the child was measured at uh, at birth in 19 and 30 days. Spontaneous remission, but but remember, this is an infant with an, with an incredible immune system. Precisely, which goes back to the question of what's different between their immune system and, and ours. Number one, and, and the second uh, thing to bring up, and I know we're going to, to uh, break here. No, we're, we're okay. I, I, I want to hit you with one thing, then you can continue. What about Bangkok? What about uh, Thailand? I... Um, I'm aware the statistics there are that about 8 out of 10 prostitutes are HIV positive. Right. And it's because they don't practice safe sex. Right. It's because uh, of needle transfer. It's because of it. So why, why would that be? Okay, Art, now this is where the controversy comes in, and this is where the science comes in, because the key... In, uh, it appears, and, and I'll get into the research, if not before, after the top of the hour, so sure. people come back. Uh, the key in whether or not these dormant codes are enabled, whether or not, what's the switch that turns off and turns on these, these key genetic sequences, it appears to be a lost technology, a lost science that we call emotion married with logic. In other words, our belief systems, how we feel, Mm -hmm. how we respond, our outlook, our view of life, and now carried into the cancers uh, and, and other uh, debilitating conditions, these are, are being proven out. Now, just before we go to the top of the hour, I want to share one of the studies that was done. Uh, and I don't know why these studies don't make Time Magazine. I really don't. This was Stanford University, 1996, a gentleman named uh, William Tiller, who is, is really well-known um, in his field of uh, researching the relationship between emotion and the immune system. What he, the way he laid this out in this particular study was that he looked at the human body as uh, a series of biological oscillators 
and equated them with uh, uh, electronic oscillators that we're used to dealing with in our, our laboratories. Right. And what he found was that the oscillators of the human body can be synchronized through mental and emotional self-control, through our outlook on life. And in doing that, they documented direct correlations to HRV, heart rate variability. Uh, there's a study I'll share with you after the break. Oh, we know that yogis, for example, can actually cause their heart to begin to... Uh uh, actually can stop it. But these aren't yogis. What they're finding, and, and they've taken this even... A no, step no, but the, 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 with the yogis, it has been so well documented. Well, sure. And the, the point is, we're not all yogis. <laughs> and we all have emotion, and emotion has been so overlooked in the Western world. For the first time, Art, and I've, I've witnessed, I've documented, we show this in our, our seminars, and I've been part uh, of, of the research, We've actually documented emotion as a physical waveform, and that waveform we've actually documented now, I've seen documented, how that waveform either turns off or turns on key genetic sequences on DNA, and that is a technology. And that's the technology, I believe, one of four key technologies that was lost 1,700 years ago. Wouldn't you agree, though, that if they had actually documented genetic change, uh -huh. that it would be front-page uh, news in lay newspapers, no, much and, less and medical? No, and I'll tell you why, Art, because, because the implications uh, are not well understood. All right, and... but listen, the clock is not our friend uh, at the moment. <laughs> We've got a break, and we will pick up exactly on the other side of the newscast, all right? Okay. All right, Greg Braden is my guest. What do you think, folks? Are we, in effect, mutating for what's coming? Might be. We'll be right back. to a rebroadcast of Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. I promise we will soon go to the phones with Greg Braden because I think we have the essence almost out. Just a little more to do. I, I want to read a supportive facts uh, for you, Greg. Uh, it says, Dear Greg and Art, I am coming to believe that my two-year-old son is a good example of the adaptation you are alluding to. And indeed, the more time we spend with him, the more I sense... He is somehow, in a subtle way, bringing us along with him. The kinds of sensitivities he demonstrates to sounds and lights and other life forms around him seem to gently prod us into noticing the same things. And his rhythms with regard to activity and recycles are seemingly infectious, though there is obviously much peril ahead, no doubt. I think the subconscious decision we have made to go on into the future has created the window through which we are now passing. 
You would agree? I would agree. I, I'm I'm seeing that on many different levels, Art. And, uh, you know, again, context is so important. If we were to witness these phenomenon without context, it's just a bizarre phenomenon. It's just isolated instances. Uh, if we're to witness... Uh, unprecedented solar flares or all the phenomenon, the you know, decrease in magnetics and breakdown of the ozone, all the new diseases, everything we're talking about, they're interesting. Uh, researchers view them as discrete, non-related events that just happen to be occurring at the same time, and, and that's a perspective. And you, see another, them, you see them all in a larger context. Yes, there's another perspective that says, look at this time in history, and what gives us that context, Art, is the, the continuity of the ancient traditions that apparently were so clear of what we were about to, to move into uh, now, apparently because we have done this before to, to varying degrees, and this ties back into our, uh, our earlier conversation. They said, sure, your earth is going to change, and you're going to see that. Your body will change and they left us what I believe, uh, as a scientist and a researcher, I say this uh, in, in all uh, sincerity, they left us a technology that allows us to transcend these, these great changes and carry forward uh, fully enabled, uh, fully empowered, perhaps more than, than we have ever been as humans in recorded human history. All right, one and, and that's of exciting. That's exciting. It is exciting. It's true. One of your main, uh, I think, proof points is you claim new patterns of human DNA triggering spontaneous healings of incurable conditions. Now, um, let's leave AIDS alone because we're going to end up uh, probably arguing about um, uh, sure. soups and uh, so forth and so forth. Can we in any way scientifically document per capita more spontaneous healings whether we're talking about um, uh, cancer or whatever, uh, today, then 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, I, I could quote you some pretty worrisome stats. For example, um, with regard to men in America, since World War, the end of World War II, there is a 300% increase in non-smoking-related cancer. Mm. So I'm, I'm wondering, uh, with regard to spontaneous remission, can we, can, can we in any way document an increase per capita in the last 50 or even 100 years? Well, let me answer that in two ways. Art, I, I think the studies, researchers are just now seeing a reason to even carry out these studies, and that's why they're so new, 1995, 96. Uh, I believe that we've always had that capability and the, the second part of, of your question, the answer to that, is where we're going with this. You said, well, what's the difference between, uh, you know, prostitutes in Africa that's, that seem to be, uh, you know, HIV cases on the rise and, and where we're seeing in other places? And that was where just at the top of the hour I tied back into um, uh, the studies that were showing that it, the, the belief systems, which is a really nebulous, area to get into hmm. the belief systems of the individuals appear to be linked to their ability to enable these codes and and i i say that w it appears to be nebulous until 1995 and 96 uh when we began seeing studies coming out of uh, stanford university uh the institute of, of heart math for example in northern california stanford university around in that area that we're actually viewing our bodies as 
uh, as biological oscillators and showing how our choice in thought, feeling, and emotion either tune or detune those oscillators in our bodies. And they, they even carried that into a study in uh, 1995, uh, a really interesting study that was published in the Journal of uh, Advancement in Medicine. As the first study that I saw, and there may be others out there, uh, 1995 is the first one that I saw that actually linked emotion with our immune system. Uh, and what they did on this study, there, there's an antibody. Oh, I, I believe it. The mind-body connection, I think uh, we don't need to have any uh, disagreement. Okay. I mean, look... Your attitude about living or conquering a cancer or uh, whatever it is that you're facing is critical. Most um, irregular physicians these days have come to recognize that, uh, the importance of that. There's no question about it. For, but for the first time, Art, I believe we understand why that is. Because if, if, uh, boy, if I had a chalkboard, I could show you really, really well. So we use the chalkboard of our mind. And, and what I'll say is if, if we envision the, the double helix of, of DNA, uh -huh. uh, and along that double helix, the, the great mysteries have always been, number one, how do these codes, or these, uh, if you want to think of them as little antenna, because that's essentially the role they play in our bodies, how do they know where to form along that double helix, number one, and number two, once they're formed, how do they know whether to be turned on or, or turned off? How do they know whether to function or not? That's, that's been a great mystery. And really still is. Uh, I, I understand, though, your theory. You're suggesting that if the mind uh, is, is, is properly, properly oriented, that the mind actually will begin to use portions of the DNA code that, that the rest of us are not using, achieving what seems to be this miracle. This was the belief before art, and this is what's different. It goes beyond the mind. The mind by itself can't do it. It must be tempered with the power that we have inherent in our bodies that we call emotion. Emotion is the waveform. Emotion provides the template that determines whether those genetic triggers are turned off or on. So the people that are doing this, the difference between uh, the prostitutes in Africa and the, and the people somewhere else who are turning this on, it's... Uh, it's how they perceive, how they view their belief systems, how they view life. And we now know that thought, feeling, and emotion, uh, and maybe you've, you've had researchers on your program who have, who have also spoken of this, for every emotion in our bodies, we have a chemical equivalent. Sure. We change pH in our brain. We change ion oh, potential uh, across the cell walls. That's absolutely. A that's a technology. Because as we choose very specific kinds of thoughts and emotions, we're choosing the chemistry of our bodies. That is where we tie back into the ancient traditions. Because I, I believe in the only words they knew uh, 1,500, 2,000, 2,500 years ago or even older, they left us the codes, literally the, the, the equations of logic and emotion that would allow us to enable these uh, these genetic links in our bodies and successfully carry us through this time in human history, that this pivotal point in human history. Let's take another specific to talk about for a second. All right. Well, Art, before we do that, you asked a question. I just I want to make sure we have completion on these. All right. At the top of the hour, you said, if this is happening, why aren't we seeing it in the front page news? I did ask that, yes. Uh, well, a couple of things. There was, I'm going to give another example of, of how this works. 
1995, there was a study that came out. It was published in the tech journals, and you had to really dig to find it. And I still haven't seen it in front page news, and I'm I'm really surprised about this. It was uh, now that we have genetic testing developed uh, to such a sophisticated science. There was a group of researchers. They took human bone marrow. They compared it genetically to the bone mar- marrow of Neanderthal, Australopithecus, That's correct. and uh, uh, Cro-Magnon yes. to find out, uh, to them, in their mind anyway, once and for all, how, how tied we really are. Did we really descend from, uh, from these earlier, uh, earlier creatures? I think the answer was we did not. Well, the studies, that's precisely what the studies said. There was not enough genetic evidence. There was not even a, a close enough match to suggest we were really even related right. to them. Now, why didn't that make front page news? I mean, I, well, it, it, well, it, it, well, maybe not front page, but I, I was very much aware of that story. Uh, Linda Howe had a long report on, on my program. Uh, we didn't see it in Time Magazine or Newsweek. Or, you're right, you're right. Uh, and things like that. Because uh, it, it was viewed as an independent, discrete, non-related study, and that's the way these things are, are coming out. Okay, but non, non-related to modern men. Now, if, what I really asked you, Greg, mm-hmm. sure. was with respect to modern man, yes. have we actually documented genetic change? Yes. The answer Within... is yes. Our, if, if we define ourselves genetically, the, the way we have since we discovered the genetic code in 1953. So if we say uh, a human, just looking at, at blood, if we say a human looks like these kinds of amino acids, this kind of DNA, and you took the blood from one of these people who's undergone these changes, they don't look like that anymore. It is literally, and scientists are calling this, it's a new species of human. They Can you, they, can you tell me specific, specifically at all where... They have noted these changes. Where, where you mean? What part in of the, the world? In the genetic, no, uh, in the genetic code itself. In other words, usually scientists will talk about uh, uh, chromosome numbers and they'll talk about uh, uh, specific genes and so on and so on. Well, what I I can say uh, to some degree, uh, certainly. What I can say is, in in people who uh, in the global blood study, for example, the the ones individuals that showed this 3,000 times resistance to the HIV virus, what they know, the common link between all of them is they had genes that were called B27, B57, B18, B51, A32, and A25 turned on. Yes, sir. That are normally not uh, enabled in, in regular, uh, you know, in the... the uh, okay, conceding that. Control samples. Conceding that. Uh, were they able to document that those turned on in that person's lifetime? Yes. Yes. and that's, that's, well, Don, that's a giant story. That, 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 that's the key. The key is, and, uh, and this was actually the quote, they say these appear to be of recent uh, evolutionary origin within the last five years, Art, and that's the key because we're used to seeing things happen with the birth of a new generation in response to... Oh, I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. Sure. Um, all right. Let me just quickly turn for a second to one other specific. All right. Because I know that you've got some uh, words to say about this, and that is the breakdown of the ozone layer oh, yeah. and the increased ultraviolet radiation. I mean, children in Australia are now having to wear hats. Uh-huh. We are told that there is, I forget now, five to seven percent uh, drop across North America. There will be, uh, the scientists tell us, 
X number of cases of glaucoma, an increase in glaucoma, skin cancer, melanoma, that sort of thing. Um, and that would appear to be, uh, for now at least, coming true. Uh, what do you know about all of this? This is, Art, this is a really good example of what this kind of information means. When we first began finding a, about the ozone breakdown in Antarctica, where it was first noted, right. we were told that that uh, high-frequency ultraviolet light was a bad light. It was harmful. Right. Uh, NASA sent a team down in 95, and, and this was documented actually in the... Um, uh, in the Lay, Lay magazines, Time magazine did a huge write-up on this. In 95, they went down they, to document the die-off of single-celled organisms at the base of the food chain because they believed it would have Im implications all the way up the food chain into the fishing, fishing industries and, and things yes. like that. Yes, indeed. What they discovered amazed the researchers uh, to the point where they... They actually released the studies uh, a month early because uh, they were asking other people to look into this. They found that the single-celled organisms did not die off at all. On the contrary, they thrived in this uh, high-frequency ultraviolet light, number one. Number two, they found um, that these frequencies that are coming to Earth through the ozone breakdown in Antarctica are the same frequencies that we generate artificially in the laboratories to cure AIDS and cancers. I think is just uh, amazing. What? what and, wait, wait a minute. I'm not aware of any frequencies we generate in labs to uh, cure cure AIDS. Well, I'm sure you've had you've had guests on that have talked about uh, uh, ultraviolet light therapies and things like that for. Um, uh, for skin conditions, uh, cancers, uh, it's been applied uh, to AIDS along with, um, you know, uh, other therapies. But, I mean, the, the light therapy... I, I know that they have done testing with uh, running people's blood through ultraviolet uh, radiation and, uh, and different things, uh, but I'm not aware that they have declared any great success rate. Well, and I'll, as you're probably aware, Art, in this country, it's not... Um, it's not a recommended course of action, right? As uh, and you know, I don't want to really get into the, the whole thing about Rife and Reich and. I Reich. think you can go to Switzerland and have sure. something like that. Sure, you go to Mexico, go down uh. to Mexico and uh, and have it done. These high. Uh, the the point is, what was really interesting, and there are some people that don't do well in these lights, and there are certainly some animals that don't do well, and this is one of those instances where I don't think there's an absolute. It's how the organism responds to the light. Some people respond very well, some don't. In light of the new research, their belief systems about that light play a key role in how well ah. they either embrace ah. or their bodies reject that light. Ah, so, so you're suggesting that if a person, for example, believes that ultraviolet radiation or even increased amounts of ultraviolet radiation will boost their immune system, will uh, uh, possibly uh, help them escape uh, an otherwise fatal disease of some sort, that those genetic changes that you're talking about will occur in that unused genetic material, and by God, it'll happen. That's what you're saying, right? It, Art, it's more than belief, and I'm going to be really clear. I'm not suggesting that people go to the equator at, at high noon and lay, <laughs> lay naked on the <laughs> yeah, beach. I, I understand. <laughs> Uh, and, and I have to, have to be really clear about that. Again, 1,700 years ago, these traditions that we knew uh, before this time 
reminded us of our relationship uh, with our world and with one another, and they, they left us the keys, the codes, to embrace the elements of nature. All right, hold and, it. And I think that's, that's key. All right, saying. hold it right there. When we come back, we'll open the phone lines. This should be very interesting because it has been a very interesting conversation. I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM. Greg Braden is my guest. He's a he's indeed a very exciting guest, and there are going to be many comments. And you're about to get to make them because we're going to open the phone lines. Uh, just one very quick thing, Greg. Yes. Um, I, I may have asked you the last time you were on the program because I think the same um, thing came up. Have you yet had the opportunity to find a book called The Miracle Strain by Michael Cordy? I have not. I'm, I'm not familiar with it. I that. would like to heartily recommend it to you. The Miracle Strain? The Miracle I... Strain. It's a, it's a genetic thriller by Michael Cordy. And the basis of it is, and, and here's why you... It's fiction, all right? It's fiction. But the basis of it is that um, a scientist's daughter... Um, he finds through genetic testing is about to come down with this fatal disease so he begins uh, scouring the world and uh, comes up with a computer to uh, look you know at this point they've unraveled the, the human genome right. and uh, he begins to look at people who have had spontaneous remissions and he looks at their DNA and begins to notice there is a specific difference in the DNA of people who have had spontaneous remissions, hence the name, the miracle strain. And I'm, I won't go any farther with it, because if I do, it'll give away the book, and then it wouldn't be as much fun to read, but it's so right down the alley of what you're talking about. You know, Arthur, there's, there's such a fine line between science fiction and, uh, <laughs> and what, what truly unfolds in our lives. Oh, I know. <laughs> and, it, you know, the, what's so exciting about this for me is w- there have been many books and certainly workshops and lectures where people say, you know, through channeled material or, or one way or another that human DNA is changing. We've all heard that. For, for me, this is the first time, uh, beginning in 1995, I've ever actually seen this evidence documented. And now as researchers are, are viewing the possibilities of a variable genetic code, uh, it's like wildfire. The research that is going on now... For example, why is it that humans don't produce vitamin C in their bodies? And 99% of other mammals, humans, apes, bats, and guinea pigs are the only mammals that do not uh, produce vitamin C because we're, we're lacking an enzyme in our liver to, uh, to convert the mineral ascorbates into, uh, into the sea. Everything is there. It's just not turned on. Now, in the, in the open literature, women are documented, and, and these are pregnant women, uh, that are producing small amounts of vitamin C. They're not multi-gram doses. The point is, if it can be done once, then that means that maybe we all can do it. And that's, that's what the researchers are seeing. When a, a young child um, transmutes HIV, if he's done it, then maybe everyone can do it. Or if at 1% of the human population are turning these codes on, maybe we all can do it. Someone has to do it once. 
and and that uh, to me that's very exciting. And I, uh, within the context of this time in history, I see something very powerful happening in our lives. Back to the best of Art Bell. All right. To the phones we go, and let's see what we get. Um, a good morning on the first-time caller line. Uh, you are on the air with Greg Braden. Yeah, this is Thomas. Thomas, you're going to have to yell at us. I, I almost... Thomas from Oklahoma. That's much better. Hi, yeah, Thomas. You'd... Yeah, well, first of all, Art, you're doing a great service to mankind. Thank you. And uh, I want to ask a question. Do you think that the DNA, the double helix, has got uh, patterns as well as spiritual and in all life itself? In other words, uh, in other words, is our spiritual self also going to be discovered to be contained within the structure of our DNA? Okay, uh, and that's a question for me. You bet, not me. Okay, well, <laughs> Thomas, what what I believe we're seeing. Uh, our history in the last 1,700 years, I'm going to keep going back to this, 1,700 years ago we began to separate our spiritual outlook uh, of life from everything else in life, and prior to that time we did not. What I believe we're seeing now is a breakdown of the boundaries between what we consider to be spiritual and non-spiritual. The answer is yes. Uh, science is being forced to define now actually what consciousness is because it's consciousness within the cell that's allowing these changes to come about. So in a, in a nutshell, that's, that's what I believe is happening. We can certainly expand on that. But uh, I, I certainly see that happening. When we go back into the ancient texts, uh, the Egyptian traditions, the Mayan traditions, and, uh, Native American or, or the ancient Essenes, it's their spiritual understanding of honoring life within our bodies and honoring our relationship with the earth that brings about these changes. All right, I, it, I believe that's where we're all moving right of, now. Of facts. Art, your, uh, your guess suggests that our DNA can possibly reconfigure itself. Ah, precisely. Will this only benefit the next generation of humans, or will this be of any benefit to us in our lifetime? Can we, in effect, stimulate the DNA to produce a resistance to, for example, biological weapons or even the common cold? Art, this is the key. There's actually an article in San Jose Mercury News of a 12-year-old boy, and this is, this is the researcher's own words, that reprogrammed his own DNA to, to change his broken DNA that were giving, was giving him a rare blood disorder they didn't know what to do with, he changed that, and they, they said he reprogrammed it on the fly from within. It's like an operating system on a computer repairing its own application programs. God, I believe the answer is yes, and this is why when I heard uh, Dateline Wednesday night, and they were talking about all of these chemical and biological possibilities and how we could never inoculate ourselves against each one of them individually. And what I, I believe, uh, I don't think this is an excuse, and I, I'm certainly uh, not justifying what's happening, I believe we have the capability within us to turn these codes on and render that kind of warfare, uh, uh, render it useless. That's... Because, because whatever is happening in our world out there, 
we have to reconcile it within our bodies in here. That's what the ancient traditions were so focused on, a code of conduct. They called it compassion. And it's interesting how compassion now is being viewed as a vibratory technology that allows us to, to program the chemicals in our bodies to give us life. Okay. And that's exciting for me. All right. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Greg Braden. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Art. Um, I wanted to uh, tell Greg I did have a spontaneous healing uh, with an ovarian tumor, but before I say that, I would like to concur with you about the reaction of that 20% of people if, for instance, the Hall of Records was opened up and all of this knowledge came forth. Um, my husband and I um, became involved um, 25 years ago with a Christian group because my husband's family has eight pastors in it, and we got into it. And I want you to know that one of the first things they did when they came into our home, our pastor, he took books and burned them in our fireplace. He took art sculptures, Eskimo, beautiful art sculptures that my husband had collected. We had to throw them away because they were satanic. What uh, religion was this? Christianity. A, a fundamentalist. Christian, a fundamentalist Christian, mm -hmm. all right. And, and the point, I think, that, that you have not gotten across to Hoagland and the rest is that it is not so much the creation part of it, but it is the the fact of Jesus coming to earth and being the only salvation, you know, that when that part of it comes in, and anything that you attempt to read, if you're seeking truth, which we were, that doesn't run in that vein, and I, I mean, book burning, what a terrible thing, and I, when I look back on it and think that we allowed them to do this, it scares me to death because my husband and I are voracious readers and then we're listening to your program, so obviously, you know, you know where we are in our heads. But, um, <laughs> who, it, who, it, yes. who are we speaking to? What's your name? My whole name, my last name. No, no, just your give first us your name. first Nancy. name. Nancy. Nancy? Na yes. Nancy, what I'd like to say, uh, I've had people speak to me about the same thing. and what I, I First of all, I'll say that I would never choose to convince or persuade anyone of anything because it... That's not what this is all about. We're simply offering possibilities. And when we go back into uh, those original texts pre-1700 years ago, they're very much aligned with everything that we're saying now. It's only after the distortions of, of 1700 years ago and then uh, in, later in the 15th century. You know, Greg, I don't think that uh, either Nancy... Uh, nor myself are arguing with you uh -huh. with regard to your belief in an ancient civilization no, or, or for that matter a lot of the rest of the stuff that you've said what we're saying is that we believe that uh, a good 20% or less or more whatever you want to assign percentage wise of people would not be able to begin to accept it would regard this as from uh, the devil Absolutely. And uh, there would be violence on a scale that you, uh, you, you can't imagine at this time. You know where I see that changing, Art, is for d people... Wait, wait, wait a sec. Uh, sure. Is that, is that correct, Nancy? Is that what you believe as well? Yes, and I, and I can tell you, Greg, it is not changing. <clears throat> and we were not in a small little cult group. This is a group that is nationwide, that has television. You know, it's a, it's a out front... Christian group, and it is frightening because they even went to the point of teaching the women how to fire guns, just as 
protection for the day when the government tries to come in and tell us that we can't be Christians and put that mark on our head. I mean, it's it's frightening. And thank it, it God. can be. And Nancy, where I see that changing, and and I have people from many beliefs and many walks of life that come to our programs, and they've said similar things to me. And what I invite them to do is to hang on to those old belief systems because they've served them up to this point. And at the point that those belief systems no longer serve them, they've got something to fall back on. And here's what's happening. Those people often are presented with something in their lives that their belief system doesn't account for. And that's the pivotal point that will allow them to embrace something new. That's your opportunity uh, to love, support, and compassionately allow another belief system uh, to unfold and go through its own evolutionary process because we all learn different ways at different rates. That's, that's the beauty of the way that we're living our lives now. Yeah, but, the, but the clever thing that they do on Sundays is that they take the very things that you discuss uh-huh. and they attribute it to Satan's big deception and that for every wonderful miracle Satan has a counterfeit you have no idea I, I do have an idea and I'll tell you a secret prior to 1700 years ago Satan didn't exist in the way that it's seen today and I'll keep going back to that if they really want to see what's happening go back to the original text oh Greg I, neither one of us are in dispute with that yeah you don't want to see it though Greg because they make you they, they will not allow you to open okay books. I they, said I said to, to my brother-in-law, who's a pastor, not a year ago, that I had just seen a wonderful program on the Dalai Lama, and his instant remark was, there's a man that's going straight to hell, and I was horrified. Now, how, how do you deal with that mindset? Because they will not read any books about Tibetan Buddhists. They won't read about Native Americans, they think, are all Satanists. Yeah, right. well, what do you do with that? Why would you want to change their minds? I wouldn't change them. I wouldn't even attempt it. But what I'm saying to you is that nothing that that you could come up with or Hoagland about the Mars, uh-huh. nothing is going to change their minds. I'd never try to. Okay. Um, I'd Nancy, never try thank, to you, thank you very much, Nancy. Um, I, what, she's trying to get through, what she's trying to get through to you, and I guess I am too, uh-huh. is that while I believe that you are correct, Nancy is also correct, and so am I when I say there is this percentage, and we can argue about the percentage. I just told you about my mail, you know, my biggest sure. mail. I, that, I would not, that could not accept this information right now, and it's a race, Greg. It's a race uh, to humanity opening its mind up a little bit and uh, beginning to look at uh, some different things, uh, and if we win the race, then we win. But if, for example, the disclosure was made right now, uh-huh. we would not be left with an operating system. Oh, Art, I'm, I'm not arguing with, with what you're saying. I'm saying I agree that it, it's probably a minority, and I believe that there is a principle that we're living called collective resonance, uh, the hundredth monkey principle. When the belief systems that have served those people no longer serve them, and it's happening right now, they look for something else. Until that time, uh, you're not going to convince or persuade anyone of anything that they, they don't want to see. And, the, and it's a relatively small number of people that, that we're talking about. Well, I, I believe, I, I don't think that, that we'd collapse into anarchy. Um, you know, and that's, I just don't think it would happen that way. You don't. 
I, I really don't. Because, and maybe, you know, Art, it's not the same world that we lived in five years ago or ten years ago. Maybe we weren't ready for it then. Maybe we're not now. If it's ever going to happen, I think now is the time because because of the context within which the, the whole thing is unfolding. And I, I really believe it's how it's done, Art. If it's done responsibly, non-threateningly, and I think there's a way to... If we can if we can put people on the moon and send probes to the edge of the solar system, we sure can work together to come to new understandings of our history. I firmly believe that. All right, uh, Greg, uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Greg Braden. Hi. Uh, good morning, Greg. Hi, good Art. morning. Hi. Um, I'm sorry, I have to agree with Art. Um, I just don't think we're ready for this. I've been listening to Art Bell for four years now, and I've been conditioned to just about anything you can think of that you can dish out. I dish out a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and I don't think I can take it. Which part? <laughs> um, UFOs, aliens, whatever you want to talk about. Oh, what about, let's leave all that behind. Let's, for a second, uh, eliminate that. Let's just say that the news is that we are not by any means the first civilization to inhabit Earth, that there have been others, that they have been so far in advance uh, technologically of ours presently, that they went to Mars and came back. And they're gone. History. And we're here now. Could you handle that? Um, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, I think and, it would bother me considerably. And what is your name, sir? My name's George. George? Perhaps the reason that it would be hard to embrace that is the very reason we're having this interview tonight. And, and think about the context of this interview. I'm offering the possibility that, that in our relatively recent history, we forgot a very powerful inner technology that empowers us beyond uh, the, the fear of what we've always known in our lives. So we've forgotten that. Without that, here we are looking at rearranging our entire history and embracing the possibility of life from somewhere else. We haven't remembered this this internal uh, technology that allows us to feel safe in that knowledge. And that's why when I've had this conversation with uh, John West or uh, Graham Hancock or Robert Bouval, I, I said, you know, if we go marching into a chamber underneath the Sphinx, and it was that information was based on a technology that we haven't even remembered yet in our lives, what is that chamber going to mean to us? And I think that's what we're, what we're saying right now. Until we can find wholeness in our memory of our history, maybe these other things don't make sense to us, and it's all coming to, to uh, uh, a fruition. It's all coming to a head right now in, in one generation. Well, I have to admit, I'd love to find out what's in those chambers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, too. And, and would it make sense, uh, again, the, the ancients and the indigenous traditions say that we're living a path. Right? I was going to get into this earlier. We're living a path right now where we build machines outside of our bodies that mirror what we are inside of our bodies. We build machines based on capacitance and resistance to remember that within our bodies. If, and, and they call that the first path. The second path is where we stop building the machines outside of our bodies because we don't need them anymore. We don't need them to the same extent because we've developed that with, from within. If we're talking about 
a face on Mars or uh, a civilization under Antarctic ice or, or the, the chambers under the Sphinx, mm -hmm. and they were developed following this second path. They'd already remembered that. Would we even recognize it? All right. Would we even recognize that if we walked in there right now? And that's what I believe this conversation is, is all about tonight. All right, Greg. Do you think it more likely, and I know what your answer is going to be, <laughs> uh, do you think it more likely that we will save our own butts by modifying our own genetic structure in the manner that you have described, or uh, with the Earth changes that are coming that we agree on, or do you think it more likely that science will pull our butts out of the fire by learning, uh, by finally mapping the entire human genome and uh, vectoring viruses uh, for genetic change? I think there... What I, I see happening, Art, is that the, the separation between the two is narrowing, and they're coming together to work together. And if we, if we continue a path of external technology, that's where the demise comes from. If we continue to build machines outside of our bodies, we continue to engineer ourselves without really understanding uh, and realizing the implications that's where you run into that statistical... Well, we uh, sure are running down that road full speed. We are, and there's something else that's happening on the flip oh, side. Hold that. On the flip side of the news, we'll, we'll talk about it. Stay right there. This is Coast to Coast AM. the country, around the world, and throughout the universe. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell on the CBC Radio Network. All right. A listener has sent a very interesting fax. Greg, are you there? I'm, I'm here, Art. Before we take that, can we give our numbers again? You certainly may. Um, First of all, folks, he's got a free newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> Have you tried the number lately, uh, Greg? Uh, our, our phone number? Yeah. I have. I bet it's busy. Uh, well, I haven't tried it since we've been on the phone, no. <laughs> they, well, they've got extra uh, operators and rollover lines. Yeah, they're going to need them. All right. Rollover anyway, lines. the free newsletter is 1-800-637-5222. 1-800-637-5222. Now, there are uh, two books that I know of. They would be Awakening to Zero Point and Walking Between the worlds and there are videotapes as well i don't know about those tell me the uh, the most recent walking between the worlds was actually just released january 1st it's a, a four hour two video cassette uh set it's uh portions of it are airing on uh, uh pbs stations uh throughout the country and and local stations as well and very very well done so, in other words, if I if I understand correctly, these are both books, and, but the second is also videotape as well. Videotape as well. Gotcha. And uh, a very well done videotape. It was it was just uh, released in uh, in January of this year, and uh, those are available at one eight hundred two four three fourteen thirty eight. And Walking Between the Worlds uh, is a book that really encompasses a lot of what we've talked about this last hour. 
And if people are really interested in this kind of work, I'm also doing a, a three-day program in Denver, uh, Colorado, March 12th through the 15th. Okay. And uh, they can find out about that through the uh, the newsletter number 800-637-5222. Okay. You ready for a question? I am ready for a question. Actually, you asked me a question before the top of the hour, and I'd like to have completion on these. I'm always doing that. As, as we go on, you asked me if I believe science uh, would be the ones to save us. And our, what I have to say is I, I believe we're birthing a new science right now. Our, our present science is incomplete. Okay, but uh, what my question was, the spirit of my question was, we are now mapping the human genome. Yes. We will be done, they now estimate, around 2002. Uh, okay. the, the, the step after that is manipulation of right. the human genome. So my question was specifically, do you think that we will change ourselves with science and manipulation of the human genome, and that will pull our fat out of the fire, or do you think it's more likely we will change our uh, human genome through um, emotion and spiritualism in in the manner that you have been uh... I think both are happening what science is is determining is by them engineering it externally they're figuring out what it takes to make those changes and in doing that they're making that connection with what we now call spirit and emotion so they're by going about it mechanically they're figuring out the, the role that uh, that emotion and waveform play in our bodies, I think we may beat them to it. I, I think we may have to, uh, just because of some of the challenges that are happening in, in our world right now and uh, how rapidly uh, the new amino acids are showing up uh, every month, uh, according to the cytokine bulletins. So how rapidly those things are changing in our bodies. Okay. Are you now ready for a question? I'm ready. All right. Here it is. Do you believe that a being, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, walked upon the earth as described? What I believe is that several times in recorded human history, reference beings have walked among us demonstrating the code of conduct that we may exhibit in life to turn on all these codes in our bodies carefully crafted answer. And, and I believe that, that in our recent memory 2,000 years ago, that man was one of those, one of the most recent that showed us the great possibilities of what it truly means to be human. Indeed so. And you referred earlier to Jesus Christ as a reference being, and that is exactly why I asked that question. Now, part two. Oh, part two. That's right. <laughs> Um, perhaps you could shed some light on this. Uh, this uh, the Bible is replete with stories of Christ uh, producing immediate miracle cures. If the Shroud of Turin could contain DNA from Jesus, uh, what would you think that DNA would reveal as compared to modern man's DNA? I, Art, there's a, a whole conversation I didn't even know we'd get into tonight. It's part of, of my research. It's I, I, I like surprising people. It, well, it's part of uh, uh, the program we do. I'll be doing this in Denver, Colorado. I was recently gifted a set, uh, a subset of the 30,000 slides that were taken during a five-year research project between, uh, that began in 1978 from Los Alamos National Labs, Sandia National Labs, uh, multidisciplinary task force examining the Shroud of Turin. 
we all heard about the study that was done in 1988, 10 years later, that said the whole thing was a hoax. We didn't hear much about the five-year study that was done with aerospace technology. One of the things they discovered uh, was that the, uh, the blood on the shroud is actually blood. The 88 study said that it was uh, a pigment and, and ochre. Uh, it is actually blood. The blood uh, is human blood. Of course, we can't say exactly whose it was. The blood uh, has been typed. They found hemoglobins. They found bile pigments. Um, they found blood proteins. And I do not know whether or not that DNA, uh, where that DNA analysis is right now, I would expect they would find uh, amino acids in that blood that we're either just now seeing or have never seen before uh, mm -hmm. in, in, our, uh, in our current blood studies. Uh, because we're just now learning how to turn the codes on to produce that uh, that kind of DNA. And there's a... a Very straightforward answer. Well, I, I just laid out a, a vast array of possibilities, and, and I'll tell you, the, uh, the, the images, uh, over 30,000 were taken in a five-year study, and, uh, and I've got 65 of those with me now, and they are pretty awesome and open up a, a vast array of possibilities. And what I'd like to say, Art, is is I believe that this transcends, this isn't about religion, it transcends religion, science, miracles, uh, and carries it all to a greater height of, of human possibility and, uh, and what we have, this, this mystery that lives within us. All right, uh, back to the phones we go. Uh, Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Greg Braden. Hi. Hi, uh, Art, this is Dan in Virginia. Hi, Greg. Hi, Dan, how are you doing? Great. Uh, I've just read part of the new book that's come out by a local uh, researcher. Her name is uh, Candace B. Pert. Okay, I'm not is familiar you, with that book. You are familiar uh, with it? I am not. What is the title? Molecules of Emotion. Huh. I've heard of it. I'm, I have not read it personally. Well, I highly recommend it because she's made the connection between she's been able to measure the changes in the molecules through emotion. Uh -huh. And she's a researcher at Georgetown uh, University. Uh, Department of Physiology and Biophysics, and uh, she's on Bill Moyer's PBS program, Healing in the Mind, sure. and also a book that he's written. Uh, I believe she, she may be referencing some work by a, a woman named Valerie Hunt, who uh, was one of the pioneers in this field. And, and again, this is this is modern science coming about it through the back door. Exactly. They're finding the the relationship between. Thought, feeling, emotion, and they make that distinction, uh, and DNA. And the ancient tradition said, as you embrace these kinds of thoughts, feelings, and emotions, this is what happens in your body. And now we're living this time in history where our bodies have to change. We're asking our, we're, we're challenging our bodies with this tremendous global change, and and we're responding to that. We're surviving. By, by adapting and, uh, and turning on these dormant codes uh, to become our, our fullest potential. So I'm, I'm not surprised that book has been recommended to me. And in my copious spare time, one of these days, I'd, I'd love to sit down and read it. All right, Dan. Two, two other points, real quick. I think essentially what, what the fundamental baseline is where this is going is two, if you raise the, uh, one, if you raise the vibration. Uh, you know, the body, you raise it above the vibrational pattern of the illnesses or the diseases, and they can't bother you. And secondly, uh, what this all is about is empowering 
the human being to realize that he has the potential to do these kind of things. All right, Dan, uh, thank you. And you would, I take it, uh, certainly agree with that? I, I would, all right, certainly. All right. Uh, east of the Rockies, you're on the air with Greg Braden. Hi. Good morning, Greg. Hi, Art. How are you doing? Just Good fine. morning. This is Dan from Moline, Illinois. Yes, sir. Um, I've got a question for you, or maybe just a comment, uh, and then I've got another question, but... Um, Excuse me. I've been able to. Um, uh, I'm a private pilot, and I usually have a, a good time with the uh, flight physicals. Right. I go in and they put you on a treadmill, and then you you once you get off the treadmill, they check your heart rate. Well, I can take my heart rate and I can think about it and cause it to drop, drastically drop. Mm-hmm. And one time I did it, and they wanted to take me to the EK to give me an EKG because they thought <laughs> this is impossible. You can't do this. Sure. Um, and I find that that's by centering myself and concentrating. When I was overseas and and getting shot at, your heart's beating so so fast that you can't hear anything. So if you calm yourself down and slow your heart rate down, you can begin to hear again. To calm yourself down, Dan, and you may be aware of this or maybe you're not, to do that you're having uh, a very specific quality of thought, feeling, and emotion, whatever that means to you, producing the chemistry in your body that allows what uh, researchers call HRV, heart rate variability, uh, and also the electrical impulses in, in the heart change, and all that's done simply through merging the waveforms of thought, feeling, and emotion, and that's the technology, the inner technology that we're talking about. I can do it any time. I believe you can do it. As I said, there was uh, quite a discussion not uh, long ago on a major news show about uh, yogis who are able to do this. Uh, They can go beyond that. They can cause their heart to begin to... um, uh, filbrate uh, uh, or uh, actually stop, even even stop for a period of time. So if they can do that, then I believe that uh, that people can control bodily functions. I'm just I'm not certain that this automatically extends to control of of, of DNA. The DNA, right? Turning on DNA, but I, I'm I'm certainly willing to consider it. Um, West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Greg Braden. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Um, good morning. This is Heather in Vancouver, B.C., Canada. Hi, Heather. Hi. Thank you, Art, for the gift of your show. You bet. Good morning, Greg. Thank good you. Morning, <laughs> good morning, Heather. Good morning. Thank you. Um, I've got a question, and quickly, I've been getting that the new age is definitely a new age, not a renewal age. Um, in the past, spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical have been at best integrated, but in this new age, sort of a new state is happening. Um, for lack of a better word, we can call it love or compassion, but it's neither physical nor mental nor spiritual or emotional. It's a new it's all state those, of being. All those combined? Combined. And obviously this, this DNA, this conscious evolution that you're speaking of, which is the words that keep coming to my mind while I'm listening to you. Barbara Marks Hubbard co- uh, coined that word conscious evolution uh, I, back in the late 80s. I was in one of her resonating corporate groups back in the late 80s when I was 18. Yeah, that's where that comes from. Yeah, okay, that's why it's coming back up again. <laughs> anyway, um, you mentioned four technologies. Would you Could you mention the other three? Uh, certainly. The 1,700 years ago, and again, I, I'm tying back into that for listeners that weren't with us earlier. And these key elements were taken out of our traditions. Uh, One of those elements was the understanding of the uniqueness of this time in history. History points to now as being very unique, and and everyone seems to know that except us in the Western world. Uh, The second one is the relationship between uh, us and our world that we have direct access 
to, uh, to our world through a highly sophisticated vibratory technology that we call thought, feeling, and emotion mm-hmm. based in prayer, which is very different than the prayer that's, that's taught today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the relation, number three, the relationship between um, how we view uh, ourselves and, uh, and the forces of this world, if we see them as, as good or bad, light and dark, and we just barely touched on that a little earlier. Mm-hmm. And number four is a very ancient science of thought, feeling, and emotion that we call compassion. And it's yeah. interesting that compassion is, is receiving so much focus within uh, these last months because it, it is a quality of, of thought, feeling, and emotion that triggers these codes uh, in, in, our, in our bodies. So our, we were talking, we had some callers earlier, Nancy, that called earlier, for example, and said, what about people that, that don't want to uh, accept this in their lives? We can go back to these models of thought, feeling, and emotion, and if, if they're angry about these new ideas, then we all know what that anger is doing to their immune system, mm-hmm. uh, what it's doing um, to, uh, to cellular functions. It's been very well documented. And that's a choice they're making in their lives until it, it no longer works, and then they'll fall back on, on something else. And we, we simply are asked to, uh, to support our loved ones, uh, you know, as they make those choices in, in life. I really... Sorry? He, he finished as, um, as they make those yep. choices in life, he yep. said. Well, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to thank you for doing so much to remove a lot of the fear that's going on um, out there and well, uh, putting people back into control. Of, thank, uh, thank you for recognizing that, and I, I appreciate that. All right. Um, let's see. First time caller line, you're on the air with Greg Braden. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Mr. Bell and Mr. Braden. Where are you, sir? I'm in, uh, my name is Mark. I'm in Springfield, Illinois. Okay, good morning, Mark. Um, Kind of, I think you're talking about ancient civilizations here. Uh, sure. I'm not nervous. I'm sorry. Um, I read a, a few years ago in a book on strange and unusual subjects about a, a metal column or like a, uh, yeah, a column. It's made of some type of a metallic alloy in a jungle somewhere. It's in India. In India. Uh, and a, a researcher friend of mine, his name is David Hatcher Childress. Okay. Uh, I, I met with him up in uh, Boulder, Colorado, along with Hancock and Bouval and John West and those people. And he, uh, David Hatcher Childress, uh, has written extensively ab- about that column. Cool. That, uh, it, like, that was like it, 15 years ago that I read that. Sure, it's a, it's a metal uh, we've never seen in this world before. It doesn't rust. It doesn't deteriorate. Hmm. Uh, they're, they're, it's based in an alloy that uh, doesn't seem to be anything from from the technology that we have today. Now, that is astounding. Well, it's, it's one of, you know, our, we call them anomalies when we compare them, and this is another show we could do. There's a, a whole thing <laughs> on this. When we compare them with what we have today, they're only anomalous through the, the view of, uh, of the paradigm we have today and through these ancient traditions. Not only are they not anomalous, you would expect to see these kinds of things. You would expect to see the miracles in people's bodies. You would expect to see... Uh, this kind of technology because it was based on uh, uh, honoring uh, the relationship between us and the elements of our world and that that uh, affords uh, a much fuller science, a much fuller right. Well, I, I've heard a good ten shows uh, born that could be birthed from the one we've done this morning. Stay right there, Greg. We're at the bottom of the hour and we'll be right back. Greg Braden is my guest. I'm Art Bell and this, of course, is Coast to Coast AM.
All right, back now to Greg Braden, and I think you will agree with this, Greg. Uh, sent to me by Mike in Ohio. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. <laughs> oh, that's that's very interesting. You know what? What we're doing here already again. We're we uh, from from my perspective. I, I never choose to uh, convince or persuade anyone of anything. We're, we lay out possibilities and opportunities so that we can have all the information and make our own choices. And uh, and that's why uh, it's such a joy to be on your show. And and I'll take this opportunity to thank you for being such a gracious host and uh, and allowing this forum for for just these kinds of discussions. Well, you're fun to interview. Uh, well, thank you. All right. Uh, first time uh, caller line, you're on the air with Greg Braden. Hi. Yes, so Art. It's so refreshing to hear a guest such as tonight who is so positive about the future and spare me from the adames of the world who can only uh, spread fear. And, uh, you know, that emotion, that, that emotion does to our... Well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of against um, attacking people who are not here to defend themselves. Uh, well, I, I definitely agree with everything your guest is saying tonight. That's positive. And um, certainly um, it's been shown in the laboratory by many writers like Deepak Chopra who talks about um, emotions release a substance called neuropeptides throughout our body, and they can either strengthen or weaken our immune system. Uh, the positive emotions like love, compassion, send positive uh, Neuropeptides to our immune system. Oh, I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Uh, the the bigger question, though, is whether we can actually modify um, our gene structure through those uh, sort of uh, mental and emotional actions. Well, uh, it's good. It's good news to hear if that is the case. Uh, indeed, it is good news to hear. Well, thank, uh, thank you for for your call tonight. What I I just like to reiterate again, you know, there's. So many researchers, and I work with them uh, every week, uh, who are out there looking at the same things that you and I are looking at. They're seeing the changes in the earth, and they're believing the changes are, are simply happening to us. And all we're laying out here is the possibility that, that maybe we've got something to say about how we respond to those changes. They, they may be uh, catapulting us into uh, you know, greater potentials of, of human expression. And... Uh, we're not minimizing the changes. We're certainly witnessing and measuring them right now. But the key is uh, now we understand we have a choice as to how we respond, uh, at least in, in uh, some of the studies. In, in this is an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell from the Kingdom of Nye. What do you consider the odds, Greg, mm -hmm. that on our present course, with change occurring and uh, Earth change occurring at the rate it's occurring, right. that we will change in time? Uh, Art, uh, if you'd asked me that 15 years ago, I would have said it, it's a race. And what I see right now is it's, it's already happening. These changes, have uh, they're already occurring. We're measuring them real time. Uh, the first book, Awakening Zero Point, you know, we talk about this, this 
time the ancients called the shift of the ages that everyone's been waiting for, from my perspective, the shift of the ages has already begun. We're living mm-hmm. this time, the shift of the ages, and I think the odds are, are very good. I, I have this tremendous faith in the potential um, of our collective wisdom, and that's what I'm seeing. Or sure, we're going to have little isolated pockets of individuals who, uh, who cling to uh, obsolete belief systems because they, they still work for them. And uh, and I certainly honor that. Everyone has the right to, to cling to whatever belief system until it no longer serves them. Yes, although you are suggesting that if enough people cling to that obsolete belief system, as you call it, mm-hmm. that, that we are doomed. If that were the case, uh, Art, and what I see is uh, an overwhelming support. I, I have the opportunity to travel globally, and I can go to... A little village in the Andes Mountains. I, uh, we were just in Egypt in January. We'll be in Tibet in April and, and back in Peru and Bolivia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can speak to people who know nothing about um, the face on Mars, who don't know anything about the shift of the ages, and they say something's changed in their village, something's changed in their family, something's changed in, in the way they feel about life. And to me, uh, that's exciting and, and that's positive. I, I, I believe that we're making the shift right now. And, and at evenings like this, people will listen to this and they won't agree with what's being heard. And, and that's great because what happens is they say, I don't agree with this. I think this is happening. And that sets them on a course of, uh, of discussion and opening to the realm of possibilities. And then you and I have done our jobs really well, really well together. In, in my case, as I have listened to you, Greg, I cannot embrace all that you say is so. Uh-huh. But... Uh, on the other hand, I absolutely don't reject it as a definite possibility. <laughs> you know what I think will, heart, uh, will happen, Art? It'll be kind of like when I was looking for Jeep Cherokees years ago. I went and looked at them a lot, and I started seeing them everywhere. Yep. Now that I, I've laid out these possibilities, I think you'll have guests on your show, and you'll say, well, you know, Greg Braden just said something about that the other night. and you'll, it, it'll, Because now you, uh, all of us, we have a new context. Uh, and within that context, you'll hear information that some may support it, some may not. And I think you'll hear more and more where you'll, you'll find room for these kind, uh, this kind of thinking and, and these kinds of possibilities in, uh, in, in the paradigm that you entertain in your life. And we're all, I'll, I'll just emphasize this, we're all learning. This is new for all of us. Uh, and we're always getting updated information. Okay, here's a whopper for you, Greg. All right. You believe there were there were, uh, was at least one, and possibly many civilizations that uh, may have exceeded us technologically in the Appreciate past. It, certainly, yes. Uh-huh. Uh What do you think happened to them? Well, let me back up. When I when you say exceeded us, and we just barely touched on this earlier. Yes. Uh, Ancient traditions suggest that we have embarked upon a path they call the first path, where we forgot who we were, we forgot our relationship to our world, and we build external technology to remind us of that, so we have a very complex structure in our society. Uh, I believe that at least one of these technologies that predates us chose the second path, that looked much less complex. They didn't have to have all the external machinery uh, that, that we do right now and, uh, and allowed so, them... The question is, why aren't they still here? Well, what I, I believe uh, in, in the most recent 
case. I believe what happened was that there was uh, there was a factor no one accounted for, uh, um, a cataclysmic factor that wasn't accounted for, and that we are witnessing the remnants of them when we, when we see Egypt and when we see uh, pre-Incan technology uh, surpassing anything we've ever seen anywhere else. We're seeing those remnants. One of the reasons I'm going to Tibet is because I believe they're living those traditions real time in uh, some pretty out-of-the-way monasteries, and I'd like to witness that and then bring that back uh, to the Western world through, through my work. Rather than just talking about texts or temple walls, how are they living these traditions today? And I think they're, they're direct descendants from... Well, that's a worthwhile investigation and another show to do. Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Greg Braden. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi, this is uh, Kenise in California. Yes. Good morning, Denise. Good morning, Greg. Um, Art, I love your show. Thank you. And you've got the best guest. Um, I had a, a comment and then a question for Greg. Um, I, I usually get your show kind of late, and we, I listen on KSFO in San Francisco. Right. And they usually used to replay the first three hours after 3 a.m. Right, they're just carrying the full live show now. Yeah, right. And so I would just encourage the listeners in KSFO uh, hearing to... Uh, Contact the station to see if we can get that change and get you back on from three to six. You're always welcome to allow uh, or to um, uh, encourage people to contact their local stations and encourage them to do as uh, you, as a customer, would like. Okay. Uh, now, my question um, for Greg is: It's concerning. Um, I have a relative who's in a coma, so I've been reading tons of stuff on the brain in the last four months. Sure. And um, the the one connection that I've read a lot about is is the connection of emotion with the in the hippocampus. Yes. And um, so I'd like you to make a comment on that. And then my other question is, do you believe it will be possible if it's not now uh, in the near future to regenerate neurons that will be functional? Uh, well, you've asked a couple of questions. The answer to the second question, I, I believe, is yes, and I, I see evidence of that happening now. Uh, first question, I'm going to back up and make a general statement in the interest of time, and, and what I'll say is that for every thought, feeling, and emotion and again, there's a technology here. Every thought, feeling, and emotion that we choose to have in our bodies, there's a chemical constituent to that. So whether you're talking uh, pituitary uh, uh, or thymus or uh, uh, hypothymus, whatever it is that we're talking about, I, what we're finding is that they're not randomly regulated. Uh, it's kind of like we come into this world on autopilot until we figure out the quality of thought, feeling, and emotion uh, and then we, we take ourselves off of autopilot and, uh, and we create those chemical reactions in our bodies. That's the technology. So in terms of someone who's, um, who's in a coma without knowing more about what induced the coma and the condition of the person, I'm really reluctant to, to speak to that specifically. All right, let us leave that for a second. Okay. She spoke of neurons. Right. What about arms and legs? Uh, in terms of regeneration? Uh-huh. Uh, I've never seen arms and legs regenerated. What I, I've seen documented in the open literature are, are internal organs. Uh, the, the, the reason that I ask this is because if we can actually modify our genetic structure, right. that should be possible. I, I believe that 100%. I've never seen it documented in the West. I've seen it suggested in the East. And in the West, what I have seen are internal organs uh, that are supposed to be removed that uh, essentially grow uh, back again, and in, in light of the etheric template or the, the vibratory template that remains, uh, 
I would expect to see that. We don't expect to see it, so maybe that's why we don't see it that much in the West. I, well, I fully... you, you must admit that at best that's anecdotal and that if it's possible for, for internal organs to be regrown or regenerated, it should be possible for external ones to be regenerated as well. I, 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 I do uh, believe that that's possible, Art. I believe it probably happens and it's not well documented, and I have to say I've never seen it well documented in New England Journal of Medicine or the, or the AMA. All right, good enough. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Greg Braden. Hello. Good morning, Art. This is Ken in Thunder Bay calling. Thunder Bay. Ontario. All right. Good morning. Good morning, Greg. I'm listening to you on 1110 KFAB out of Omaha. Yes, sir. Ah. Um, you more or less touched on my question in, with your last one, but has there been any studies uh, showing, um, uh, I'm very nervous, uh, aid in helping a physical injury? Uh, you know, you're talking a lot about diseases and, and viruses and whatnot, but like physical injuries, certainly. We, we, we literally just covered that. Now, physical injury, uh, I suppose to a lesser degree than we just had a discussion about, yes, healing, I think he was talking about healing, right? The, the answer is yes. Uh, I've, I've seen it myself with my own eyes, so I can speak from direct experience. And I've also, uh, in the open literature, well-documented uh, cases of, of healing bone very quickly. And Art, again, uh, and I'll just invite the listeners to, to bear in mind, in, in these four hours, we're just barely touching the surface of, uh, of information that has vast uh, implications what I've actually witnessed, Art, is on a, a TV monitor in front of me, uh, Japanese physicians using traditional Japanese healing techniques that we're talking about right now uh, and watching in real time in less than three minutes a bladder cancer disappear. And, wow. uh, and it's, I mean, it's, it's right there on the video. I've seen it. Uh, they are working with the woman who has the bladder cancer to, to help her through this, and they're doing it without the aid of any ultrasound or anything like that. They're um, they're simply doing it through what today some people would call hands-on. It's it's a, a magnetic therapy, uh, magnetism running through their bodies. Did they have her uh, in a CAT scan or or something to be able to see this occur? They, they actually had her. It was uh, uh, on a, uh, a sonogram. Sonogram. Sonogram happening real time. They had the tumor on one half the screen on the the right hand of the screen. Uh, they had the real time tumor so that you could compare the two. And uh, and once the process began, uh, within three minutes, the entire. I mean, it was just amazing. The My entire. God, that's tumor. astounding. Is that on your videotape? It's not on mine uh, that I have out now. We're working to get permission to incorporate it into, uh, at least into the workshops and, and possibly into the videos. I can see why. Um, and, and what they were doing, they were using emotion uh, and, and the magnetics of the emotion in the body, which is an area we didn't even get into. It's, it's a technology that we call healing, and now we're just understanding what healing really means to us. All right. Um, I hope you get it. West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Greg Braden and not a lot of time. Hello. Hi, this is Rick in Seattle. How you doing, Art? Hi, Greg. Good morning, Rick. Good yeah. morning. Yeah, great show. And like the one caller said, I really like the kind of positive way you're looking at things and helping to educate us, both of you gentlemen. Um, Thank you. Yeah, uh, one thing that I was thinking of earlier, and you made the point that I was going to make, Greg, um, when you're talking about just the fact that people are becoming more aware, it's going to slowly chip away these paradigms. 
And like you said, Art, that 20% of those letters you get? Yes. Well, just the fact they're writing a letter means that at a certain level they're aware, they're being exposed to it, so there's hope for change. And the the two questions I have are, are basically um, one for you, Greg, and that would be we're talking a lot about kind of raising the spiritual awareness and the vibratory level, um, you know, through teachings and writings, perhaps some of them that we've lost. What about the external possibility that we're going to a different area of space with a vibratory level of space itself is different and might change us? I think the vibratory le level of the earth, actually the Schulman resonance, uh, you believe is going up, moving up, don't you, Greg? Well, it's, we didn't get into that tonight. There's a lot of controversy. It's, it's earth vibration, which now is being measured as something different than Schulman, than Schulman out of the atmosphere. All right, we're not going to have time to get into this. We've, yeah. we've got material here for a good dozen shows, um, at Wait. least. Can, can I? I'd like just in, a, in response to that. What I'd like to say, uh, and again, Rick is your name. He's already off. Okay. We're what, out, we're out well, of what, time. what the ancient traditions say to us, Art, is that as we simply honor one another in life, honor our relationship to the to the world, uh, to our earth, we've already addressed that spiritual aspect. We've already shifted uh, uh, bodily frequencies, and wherever Earth is taking us, and whatever is happening, is, is already accounted for simply by living life in the presence of one another and honoring one another in life. And, and that's a whole technology unto itself. All right, Greg. Now, to get a free copy of Greg's newsletter, you can call 1-800-637-5222. To get um, either one of his books or the available videotapes, you can call 1-800-243-1433. And, um, uh, Greg, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the program. Well, thank you, Art. I, uh, again, I just appreciate your uh, gracious hospitality and, uh, and your joy to, to uh, bat these ideas around with. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. All right, my friend. Take care. Until next time. You take good care. All right. That's Greg Braden, folks. That's it. We are woefully out of time. I would like to say that if you would like a copy of this program and... I am getting multiple gazillions of requests for it. It is a four-hour program, and you may get it by calling beginning now, 1-800-917-4278. Let me give that number again. Please write it down, 1-800-917-4278. We'll be back with Dreamland on Sunday. And then, of course, Monday night, Tuesday morning, we are going to be discussing a very timely thing, the Titanic. Have you seen that motion picture yet? It deserves everything it's going to get. What an incredible, incredible story the Titanic is. And that's what we're going to be talking about uh, either Monday night or Tuesday morning, dependent on your time zone. For now, from the high desert, in all the Americas... <laughs> and across this great globe. Good night.